The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello, and welcome to Invincible 20 Roundtable. I'm your host, Jamin Bull, and Invincible is the 10th and last studio album by the King of Pop, Michael Jackson. Released 30th of October 2001 by Epic Records, the album was the result of a long, laborious, and expensive recording process that arguably ruined Michael Jackson's relationship with his record label. Jackson started the album's production after the history tour concluded in 1997 and did not finish until two months before the album's release in October 2001. Reports indicate that the album cost around $30 million to make, with Jackson lavishing luxurious benefits upon his production team, even putting them up in five-star hotels during the recording process for extended periods of time. With costs mounting up, multiple missed release deadlines, and Michael refusing to tour the album, it was a recipe for tension. During this period, Michael was struggling with drug dependency, a shockingly deteriorated physical appearance, and what seemed to be a deep crisis in confidence. Following the lackluster 30th anniversary concert to New York City and the alarmingly average You Rock My World short film, Sony made the decision to abruptly end promotion for the album. Jackson made subsequent allegations that Sony's record label boss, Tommy Mottola, was a devil and a racist who did not support black artists, but exploited them for personal gain. The era was an absolute mess. Invincible debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 and in 10 other countries worldwide. The album was certified double platinum in January 2002 by the Recording Industry Association of America and has sold over 8 million copies worldwide to date. Decent worldwide stats but certainly not domestically in the United States, especially by the King of Pop standards. In 2001, Invincible's success was eclipsed by Jennifer Lopez, Destiny's Child, Janet Jackson, Aaliyah, NSYNC, Blink-182, and Alicia Keys. And in early 2002, the album had disappeared from the charts, being replaced by artists such as Creed, Ashanti, and Eminem. The album's lead single, You Rock My World, peaked at number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 and was nominated for Best Male Pop Vocal Performance at the 2002 Grammy Awards. The album spawned two more singles, Cry and Butterflies, as well as the promo single, Speechless. The album features appearances from Carlos Santana, The Notorious B.I.G. and Brandy. It incorporates R&B, pop, soul, and similarly to Jackson's previous material, The album explores themes such as love, romance, isolation, media criticism, and social issues. At face value, it sounds like it's got all the ingredients of a classic Michael Jackson album, right? Well, there is no other MJ album that inspires such heated debate in the fan community. What went wrong with Invincible? What could fix Invincible? Should it have been released in a sixth color? These are the questions we'll be dealing with on our roundtable today. All right. So I am excited to be here. This show has been bubbling away for many, many years. I'm sure you guys would agree that this is an album that is heavily debated in the fan community. 
and it's one we're going to dig into right now. So we've got five participants today. Other than myself, we're joined by award-winning journalist and co-host many on many, many episodes, Charlie Thompson. Charlie is subbing in for Christina. She was due to be here today, but unfortunately, some electrical issues are happening at her house, so she can't make the recording. Charlie, welcome back to the MJ Cast. Are you ready to talk about Invincible? Uh, if I must, yeah. <laughs> nice. And of course, we've got returning to the MJ Cast, Mr. James LA. James, you've hosted a number of roundtable episodes we've done before on previous albums. Welcome back to the MJ Cast. It's been a while since you've been on. Hi, thank you very much. Happy to be here. Super exciting. Returning, I think, for the third time this season, Mr. Sean Shackleford. Sean, welcome back to the MJ Cast. It's great to speak to you again. It's great to be here. And Charlie, I'm going to do my best uh, to balance you out as best as I can. <laughs> and also coming back for a second time on the MJ cast, John Cameron. John, you were on our history roundtable. And John, you put out a great podcast yourself called JC's Musicology. And welcome back to the MJ cast. It's, it's really great to have you here. Thank you very much. It's good to be back despite today's topic of discussion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm already getting a sense of, of where people are at with their thoughts on, on Invincible. <laughs> and, and we're going to do this in a, in a pretty interesting way. We're going to talk about some context for the album and a bit of history behind it first. Then our own experiences as, as it sort of came out. We're then going to go track by track through the album, discussing each song and its merits or lack thereof. And then by the end, we'll talk about the fun little section on if we were to re-piece Invincible together ourselves and recommend the track list, what would we have Invincible, Invincible be like? So we'll kick things off with a bit of context, I guess, for Invincible and a bit of MJ history. We know that Invincible's recording process really started around the end of the History World Tour. Once Michael had wrapped that up in, in 1997, he immediately started working with Brad Buxer at Brad's LA house. And they worked on a number of songs, uh, including ones called Hanson, which became The Way You Love Me, That, Bio, and Monster meaning the real monster, not the one on the, uh, the Michael album. That's the, the song that CJ Devilla also worked on. Michael was also working at this time with, with different artists that were prospective collaborators for Invincible, including Puff Daddy and Babyface, who were involved early on in, in submitting songs. They worked on at least two songs, and one of which I really, really want to hear. There's a song called Angel, which Babyface describes as, as simply fantastic. Other artists collaborating with Michael around here were, were the Neptunes. Pharrell Williams submitted songs like Senorita, Like I Love You, and Rock Your Body, which famously ended up being included on Justin Timberlake's debut solo album and did really well as singles. And also around this time, Michael had his second child, Paris, who was born in 1998. And we need to understand, I guess, that Invincible really came about during a very complex time in Michael's life in which he was having more children and his marriage to his wife, Debbie Rowe, was kind of concluding. They were getting divorced um, around this time. And Michael also had some injuries, which we'll talk about a little later. But Invincible is, I'm sure we could all agree, kind of a problematic album, but so were the circumstances surrounding its recording. During this time as well, John McLean became Michael's manager. And he, of course, famously had managed Janet Jackson for many years. And Michael brought him on board to take the reins over his broader career. And the main work being done in these early days were with Brad Bucks and Michael Prince and Dr. Freeze. And they were working at Record Plant and Record One in LA. 
Buxer was working on Michael's own creations, as well as the songs that R. Kelly was also submitting. And Dr. Freeze was working on songs like Break of Dawn, Blue Gangster, and A Place With No Name. The trajectory for Invincible really changed in Christmas 99 when Michael started working again with Carol Bayer Sager, who was actually thanked on the first page of the album booklet. And she'd previously worked with Michael on the song It's the Falling in Love for Off the Wall 20 years earlier, produced by David Foster. And they worked on songs like I Have This Dream, which obviously was, was unreleased, and then another unreleased song, We've Had Enough. During this collaborative partnership, Carol Bayer-Sager introduced somebody to Michael Jackson called Rodney Jerkins. And he was, of course, the, a protege of, of Teddy Riley and pretty much the hottest thing in the music business at that time in terms of production. He'd done a lot of work with Destiny's Child and had a lot of fame there. And Michael really gravitated towards him as maybe being that potential new dance song producer that could do work that would flesh out the album, kind of, I guess, like Teddy Riley did in the in the Dangerous era. The production team that, that Rodney was a part of was called Darkchild, and it was made up of LaShawn Daniels, Fred Jerkins, and then Rodney himself. And the trio worked tirelessly in the studio, sleeping there, creating song after song. And most of the songs they would create actually would sound fairly complete, even in demo form. If you go back and listen to demos of songs like Threatened, they pretty much sound exactly like the final version, but with LaShawn's vocals instead of Michael's. And Rodney worked exclusively for Michael and put a lot of other artists on hold that he was working with as well. And this this sort of relationship went on for a number of years. Now, during this whole recording time, Michael also worked with Lenny Kravitz, Corey Rooney, Walter Afanasieff, who did Fall Again, and lots of others during the album's production, creating some classic songs that wouldn't make it on the album, but would leave fans scratching their heads for years to come as to why they didn't. By mid-99, the production had shifted to New York, and the first song Dark Child presented Michael was You Rock My World. He absolutely loved it. Other demos at that early stage included Escape and Privacy. And it's crazy to think about, but by the time Michael performed his MJ and Friends benefit concerts in 99, some of Invincible's songs had already been crafted. This, of course, is famously where the stage malfunction happened and that bridge collapsed and Michael obviously was injured during that and then really kicked off his uh, drug abuse again from that point onwards. He he got divorced in 99 and the album was really meant to be out by about 99, but production had massively slowed by the end of the year. We also saw Michael cancelling concerts in Hawaii and Sydney in 2000. By about March 2000, Michael was working on songs like Speechless. And by September 2000, many in the camp uh, thought the album was done and ready to go and things were looking positive for a March 2001 release. Engineer Brad Gilderman said that there was some really, truly amazing stuff at this time, but it wasn't really moving Michael in any way. And uh, he only wanted to keep about six of the songs that they'd actually put together. And two years after the production had started, they'd already missed a lot of deadlines. Michael wanted the album to go in a completely new, quote-unquote, futuristic direction and had Rodney Jerkins and the team in junkyards sampling crazy new sounds. And the result of this final recording chapter really included songs like Unbreakable, Heartbreaker and Invincible and those kind of sounds. And the album was now approaching completion. But Michael still wanted input from other collaborators, and that's where he started to work with people like Teddy Riley. Michael booked out an entire floor in the Four Seasons Hotel where he was working with Brad Buxer on The Lost Children. 
And Michael was submitting tracks to Sony at this time, and they were not overly impressed by this. It deflated Michael, and he stopped attending studio sessions shortly after Christmas. Even Bruce Swedean left the project and said he'd only come back if Michael did. John McClane was one of the last producers to have his touches felt on the album after he put Michael in touch with Andre Harris and Marsha Ambrosius for Butterflies. He also contributed the song You Are My Life with Babyface. Michael joined Teddy Riley at at this late stage at Virginia Beach, staying in a two-bedroom condo with a recording studio, and that's where they worked on songs like Whatever Happens, Heaven Can Wait, 2000 Watts, Don't Walk Away and Shout. Michael came back from Virginia to a pretty big crisis, actually. He, at this point, reports say that he sort of jumped on the phone to his management team, the firm, Jeff Courtenets and Michael Green, and he was furious at them, shouting down the phone, uh, reportedly <laughs> intoxicated, saying, you're supposed to be working for me, fighting for what I want and what's best for the album. You're purposely trying to sabotage my album. Fuck you, you're fired. If you don't believe in me, there are other people who do. In the final few weeks of production, Michael moved to Miami, where Riley, Jerkins, Buxer shared studio rooms in Miami's hit factory, and this is where they put together the finishing touches on Unbreakable and Threatened. And Unbreakable sort of becomes a favorite of Michael's at this point. He wants it to be a lead single. However, Sony really pushes for You Rock My World and achieves this by intentionally leaking it prior to Michael's 30th anniversary concerts. And I know that was a bit of a lengthy history lesson there, but hopefully it sort of encapsulates what was going on with the recording and how messy it all was during the time. Brad Sundberg famously said on the MJ cast that this was not a smooth recording process like other albums. This was quite messy and a very difficult process to get out. Wow, I'd never heard some of that stuff you were just saying. I mean, I was aware of um, some of the other contextual issues that were going on at the time. The thing that's going on in the background is the collapse of Michael's relationship with Sony. So back after the Bad album, he had negotiated this great deal. At the time, it was touted as a billion-dollar record deal that he had signed. Of course, the first album that came out after he signed that deal was Dangerous, and the promotion of Dangerous was damaged and interrupted by the Chandler case. Then you had History, Blood on the Dance Floor, which was not really an album. It was more of an EP with some remixes pegged on the end. And Blood on the Dance Floor is where you start to see Michael getting cheesed off with Sony, infamously within the fan community. In, I think, 1998, he gives an interview to a fan magazine called Black and White, and they ask him why Blood on the Dance Floor was half remixes instead of new material. And he says, because Sony said that that's what my fans wanted. They said that's what the kids want to listen to. And the fan that was interviewing him said, "Um, no, we don't like the remixes. We want new material. And Michael apparently thrust his fist in the air and said, I knew it. I knew it. And so that's the first sign that he and Sony are at odds over the creative direction of his work. Or one of the first signs. I mean, you can go back and look at the Ghosts video and what they did to the Ghosts video, the way they sort of fiddled around and edited with it after it was finished. And and uh, I can't imagine he was very happy about that either. And so 
as the recording process rumbles on and it's taking a very long time. Sony is getting very aggravated. Now, there were reports at the time, which I don't know if they've ever been confirmed or not, that Michael actually submitted a version of Invincible to Sony. And they rejected it, said it wasn't good enough. But certainly by about the year 2000, about summer 2000, Sony were fed up enough that they started trying to prod Michael to speed up and finish the album. And that was why they sent Rudy Provencio into Michael's camp. He was there to essentially, the word he used when I spoke to him was babysit. He was there to try to babysit Michael and get the album over the finish line. With the relationship between Michael and Sony not faring very well, back when he'd signed the deal right before he started to put Dangerous together. The deal had included movies because Michael's dream ultimately was to turn his back on music and go into film. And he had been working on the Ghosts video, which was supposed to in some way tie in with the Adams family at the time of the Chandler allegations and it all fell apart. And it was reported that in the lead up to Invincible coming out, at one point, Michael stole all of the master tapes and held them hostage and told Sony that he wouldn't turn the album in unless they finally delivered on the promise that had been made a decade earlier and they got him a movie role. And that is supposedly how he ended up getting the cameo in the Men in Black sequel was because Sony arranged that in return for him actually surrendering the master tapes and and handing over Invincible. You already touched upon, by the time Invincible is about to come out, the dispute continues because Michael wants the lead single from the album to be unbreakable and Sony disagrees strongly and wants the first single to be You Rock My World. In an effort to force Michael's hand, they leak You Rock My World to radio and then say, oh, well, look, the song's already out in the world now, so we're going to have to go with it. Michael gets to the video shoot and Karen Fay and others have spoken publicly repeatedly about what happens on that video shoot, which is supposedly that some of the suits connected to the management and the record label are so alarmed and concerned about Michael's appearance that they, behind his back, hatch a plot to get him to wear a prosthetic nose. And when he learns of this proposal, he is so distraught and um, humiliated that he locks himself in his dressing room. And I think the story is that he started chopping off all of his own hair with a pair of scissors, which is why he ended up wearing the bandana and, and having the short hair in the video. The video, clearly, when you watch it, is not finished. I mean, it makes no sense. There's the whole exchange with Marlon Brando that makes just no sense whatsoever. We know from the private home movies that they filmed a massive explosion, which never ended up in the video. So the the video ends up being a complete bodge job. It's a decent song. You know, You're On My World is a decent lead single, but it's not the single Michael wanted, and the video is disrupted and relations between him and the suits are basically a breaking point. And then 
when the Madison Square Garden 30th anniversary show airs on US TV, Sony fails to buy a single advertising slot within the broadcast to promote Michael's new album, which Michael is really, really cheesed off with. There's only two more singles after that, one of which actually gets released as a single, which is Cry. Butterflies, I think maybe some promos went out or something, but it's certainly in the UK. We got You Rock My World and then we got Cry. Michael refuses to appear in the video for Cry, reportedly. I mean, we can see he's not in it. And the video is kind of boring and feels very much like you're on my world like something else was supposed to happen and didn't and then we get the public falling out with sony and there's this this other backstory to that which is you know is it just a falling out about creative direction or is there something bigger going on which Corey rooney has alluded to the former vice president of sony who essentially said that what sony was doing was deliberately sabotaging the album and jacking up the costs of making and marketing it, then collapsing the sales on purpose by sabotaging the promotion because they wanted Michael to be in a bad financial situation because they would profit from that, because they would be able to take his half of the catalogue that he jointly owned with his own record label, which was one of the worst decisions he ever made. Now, this is all against a backdrop of another massive contextual problem, which is the condition that Michael is in. So as you mentioned earlier, he has the bridge collapse at the MJ and Friends concert in 99. He badly damages his back, ends up using pain medication again in a detrimental way, as he would later testify in a deposition. He was often uh, making business decisions whilst incapacitated through medication. So he's not in a good way. He's not making good decisions. And these two circumstances collide where he has a massive falling out with his record label at the exact same time that his judgment is impaired and he is in a bad way and not really in a fit condition to conduct himself properly in public and it all culminates eight months after the album's release with Michael embarking on this kind of ill-conceived campaign where he's suggesting that the destruction of his album by Sony is part of a racist plot for which there really isn't much evidence at all much credible evidence in fact he even Reverend Al Sharpton a couple of days after Michael made those speeches in New York, backtracked and said that he knew Matola, Tommy Matola, the, the head of Sony personally, and that he was not a racist. Um, so it all just turns into a complete debacle. So really, that's that's the context. The context is Michael involved in a massive dispute with his record label, which raises questions also as to whether he actually deliberately turned in a subpar album, because when he gave his speech at the Killer Thriller Party in London in 2002, he certainly at that point was talking about giving Sony subpar material to get out of his contract. And this circumstance just happens to coincide directly with Michael being in a very bad way physically 
being in the depths of a, a painkiller problem. And it was just a recipe for disaster. Charlie, I agree completely. And Jamin, by the way, great recaps. Very thorough, too, by the way. Yeah, I think it's clear that Michael Jackson, the king of pop, we should say the aging Michael Jackson and the aging king of pop was going through some life changes and definitely going through some struggles. I think there's two redeeming points that we can make in reflection looking back. One is that really this is only being revealed to us when looking back. Even in this form of distress, the Michael Jackson apparatus and machine was functioning very well. This whole era was like my coming of age in a lot of ways. I was on the internet. I was going to the MJ forums every single day, refreshing and like looking for every little detail. Planet Jackson, remember those? Like, I mean, they had all the scoops and new album. It's going to start with an I, you know, like, you know, <laughs> it was, it was definitely very hyped up. And there was certainly a propaganda apparatus and machine reminiscent of the true King of Pop, still very highly functioning, even through all of this. Even, it, you know, it's in hindsight, looking back at the 30th anniversary celebration, I was there live. I watched it as well on TV and we were so proud of that. I mean, it was, it was an awesome show. You know, it's only in hindsight we sort of see that, okay, yeah, it was a bit of a struggle for him, wasn't it? Also, the other redeeming quality is Invincible is still a very good album. And in the context of a universe of just Michael Jackson songs and just Michael Jackson albums, okay, yeah, Invincible, probably all of its tracks probably rank towards the bottom of, you know, Michael Jackson's work. But in the context of 2001, in the context of everything it was supposed to be, it's a pretty good product for its time. And, uh, you know, it's pretty impressive what this man and what the king of pop in distress is still able to pull off. I think Invincible's failures is often attributed to a breakdown with Sony, but I really think it's a breakdown of Michael Jackson. As James said, he was, you know, highly functioning during this era, from the album itself to the special editions, which I I guess he didn't really have a lot to do with, the 30th anniversary, it it was a pretty decent time to be a fan, but it definitely signaled a decline. And it's not just the Invincible era, it's also obviously had to deal with the trial, but following that, the record deal in air quotes with two Cs, going over to Bahrain, inviting John Barnes and Bill Bottrell and that stuff never eventuating. One just really does wonder how much the This Is It era could have, I guess, redeemed for that long stretch of disappointment as as MJ fans. I, I think that's how I'd put it. So clearly there was a lot going on in MJ's life at that time, and this album represented that for me. And the great thing about this, and I agree with James, that this was a really good product. And for me, when the songs were, you know, when MJ was at his best, this was the best MJ. These were some of the best MJ songs. When they were at their worst, it really did sound like MJ was, you know, uh, mailing it in really it was confusing as to why he chose certain songs, uh, especially when you go back and look at some of the songs that did not make the album. So I really do think it's a it's a good album. Uh, it it could have been better, but it really does as a as a fan. It really does reflect where he was in his life, for better or for worse. 
I've got to very strongly disagree that Michael was highly functioning at this time or that it was only with the benefit of hindsight that we could have known that anything was wrong. I think, firstly, he looked really terrible through the whole era and even before it began. Clearly something had gone wrong with some procedures that he had got to his face and his face was frozen. His appearance at times was extremely shocking and not remotely marketable. Also, anybody who saw the first night of the Madison Square Gardens, there's no way that anybody could claim that it was not obvious that there was something wrong with him. It was extremely obvious that there was something really, really badly wrong with him. And when you look back at the way this era was being covered by the press and the way people were responding to what was happening, not only in the press, but in the public, it was very clear that there was something really badly wrong with the Michael Jackson machine at this time. And I think what it was was that the fan community was blind to it, and they were the only people that were blind to it. And what it, what happened was it took the fan community time to come to terms with how bad it was. I mean, I remember the fans on the forums posting pictures of Michael at the uh, the New York record signing and saying, look how sexy he looks today. And I remember even I, as a big fan at that time, was like, what is wrong with you? You know, he looks really, really ill and bad. I just can't agree that it's only with the benefit of hindsight and new information that it's become clear that something was wrong. Something was really, really obviously catastrophically wrong. And we we just didn't want to see it. I agree. I agree completely. I'm, I'm like quite candidly, I'm absolutely one of those fans. And uh, I think what I mean by hindsight is I think time is certainly one of the tools that have, you know, it's like it's like we were wearing sort of rose colored glasses and you know now we're wearing quite literally from a technology standpoint hd on demand youtube access anything you want connected to fan video fan testimony posthumous interviews they've all they've all worked together to sort of peel off some of the rose color, the, the, to peel off the rose filter on our lenses that was the Michael Jackson propaganda machine, whatever that is, the King of Pops machine, the apparatus. We were absolutely blind to it. And it wasn't just us. I mean, it, it was also a media that for whatever reason, if for any reason, because it's a you know world of conglomerate empires, but for whatever reason, the media wasn't nearly as open to some of Michael's distress as social media allows us to be today. But yeah, I, I do agree with your assessment there. Okay, so let's turn our conversation a little bit to our own personal experiences as the album was coming out. I remember having seen 30th Anniversary Concert and it, as we discussed in our previous episode, totally changed the trajectory of my life in terms of engagement with music. I became an instant mega fan and with all of its faults, it still converted me over to be a hardcore Michael Jackson fan. From that moment on, I was like you, Charlie. I was on the forums. I wanted to see everything that was going on. I was refreshing the page constantly. I was wanting to see news about new music and all of that. And uh, I remember going into my local record store when Invincible had just come out. And they had like a uh, 
they don't have these any, well they don't have record stores anymore but they had like this it's kind of like a bar setup <laughs> with like CD discmans uh, on the, there was like five or six of them in a row on this bar you could sit out on a stool and you could put in an album that you wanted to hear and you could hit play and I remembered putting in Invincible and listening to you know the first track Unbreakable and and even then I I remember hearing it and not fully vibing with it. I, it was it was a loud record store. There was a lot going on. But even the music itself, I remember feeling a little confused by it. It was very busy. And I was like, oh, this doesn't really sound like the Michael Jackson I was expecting. And then, of course, you know, You Rock My World came out and everything and totally into that. But um, that was my sort of first experience with Invincible. What, do you, what about you guys? Let's go around the table. Um, well, very similar to you, Jamin, actually. I, I really became a fan because of the 30th anniversary celebration, watching that on the television. Despite my uh, my youth, I did grow up with records in the house and my mother had quite a vast collection, including Michael Jackson, who I'd listened to quite regularly. But yeah, it, it was the 30th anniversary celebration that really solidified that for me. And at our local retail store, there were just racks and racks of copies of the Invincible album. And it's a distinct memory because, strangely enough, every single copy was blue. Unfortunately, I didn't have the foresight at the time to buy a load of them up because uh, apparently the coloured ones sell for, you know, something of a premium nowadays. But I got a green one in my hand right now. uh, Yeah? You didn't go the full five? (laughs) No, I didn't. I think I got a white and a green. <laughs> Fair enough. I just stuck with the blue and left it there. <laughs> but that was, uh, yeah, that was pretty much it for me. My, I mean, my first single was You Rock My World and the number ones compilation followed shortly after. It was This was the era where it started for me. And a lot of it is because of there was plenty of opportunity with the special editions coming out and the new album. And and also probably my age as well. Well, I was definitely excited. I was always excited for a new MJ product. And so I remember going to uh, Best Buy on my lunch break. And I, I bought all the colors that were available. And I, um, and when I, when I, you know, got in my car uh, to listen to the first track, uh, Jamin, I, I, I have to disagree. I was absolutely blown away just in terms of, you know, it was a different sound for MJ. I was overwhelmed, but, you know, I only had enough time to listen to the first three tracks. So I was very excited. I still have all of the, I think I bought two of each color. So I still have them uh, sealed and stored somewhere. Uh, like I said, at this era for me, this was, you know, my coming of age. I was a high schooler. You know, I was always a computer savvy kid, internet savvy kid. And a lot of that was because that's how I stayed connected to the things I love. And the world of Michael Jackson was one of those things. I was on all the forums, all the boards. I poured through every story and interview prior to the album on the forums. Fans, we all gobbled up the last Spice Girls album with Holler on it because there was speculation that Ronnie Jerkins track was presented to Michael and that it could have been a Michael Jackson track or it's what the new album was going to sound like. The anticipation for me in my little bubble was very, very, very high for this album. Went to the 30th anniversary shows. Of course, I have, you know, sealed copies of all the colors and I got the vinyl and every single and 
VHS recordings of the Virgin Megastore appearance and the, you know, all of it. It was, you know, probably similar to you, John, just a little Mm -hmm. older. You know, it was my prime years in the MJ world. And it's it's kind of like, even though it is a an album that received really mixed reception, both amongst critics and fans, it still has a special place in my heart because it's really the only proper Michael Jackson album that came out during my time as a fan. I remember going to school and, and like literally talking to other students about, you know, the new Michael Jackson single and what people thought about it. And I remember for a period of time, there was real competition around what was the hottest song at that point. It was either You Rock My World or I think it was Rollin' by Limp Biscuit, <laughs> And uh, I think it was around that time. And uh, it's just cool to think back and, and look on that as like, wow, there was, you know, I was a fan during a time when, when hit Michael Jackson singles were coming out, albeit just one of them really with You Rock My World. Charlie, your personal experiences as the album was coming out before we move on to the track by track. Similarly to some of you, this was my first era. So I I got into Michael when I was like, you know, seven years old or something because a friend played me all of the music videos. And by the time Invincible came out, I was 13. And so it was the first Michael Jackson album release that I lived through. And I did not have the internet. I had an email account and I would have to go down to my local library every couple of weeks to use the internet, which was how I found out it was coming out, I think. Well, first thing I remember is the single coming out, You Rock My World. The video debuted on Top of the Pops in the UK. And I remember being a family party the week the single came out. Of course, I'd been out and bought it. And there was a debate going on in the house about what's going to be number one this week. It was a a Sunday night. We were all at my nan's house for a party. And I was having an argument with my uncle, what's going to be number one. And I was saying it's going to be Michael Jackson, because it seemed like a given. It seemed like it's Michael Jackson's lead single from his new album, it has to go to number one because that's what happens when Michael Jackson releases a new single from a new album. And he said, no, it's going to be Kylie Minogue. And it was Kylie Minogue was number one. And I remember feeling really crushed and thinking, fuck, you know, so it's the lead single from the new Michael Jackson album. And it's not gone to number one. That was a big deal. Then the album came out and it must have come out in the school holidays because I remember walking down to the record store on the day of release first thing in the morning. So I was there when the shop opened and then taking it home and listening to it. So it must have been the school holidays, the half term break or something. And that was another shock because I got to the record store, you know, from years gone by, the day the new Michael Jackson album comes out, people are lining up outside the store. I got there. I was the only person in the record store. There was nobody there. I walked in and bought my copy, took it home, remember sticking it in the CD player and kind of liking Unbreakable, but thinking Michael sounded a bit weird on it. And then not really liking much that came afterwards. And the other thing I remember is that is kind of after a while thinking, God, this is really long. And, you know, I was 
as a Michael Jackson fan, you would think that you would be engrossed and sort of going, oh my God, this is amazing and I don't want it to end. But I remember sitting on it a bit, listening to it and thinking, fuck me, is it still going? <laughs> um, and, you know, so the whole thing was just kind of um, kind of a damp squib. The other thing I, you know, now that I look back is the releasing in five colors. So Sean has just said, he bought two in every color. James just said he bought every color, kept it sealed, bought the vinyl. So the sales for Invincible were not that impressive. Of course, they were impressive for most artists. They were not that impressive for Michael. And you also have to take into account that those sales were affected by fans like us. Not me. I only bought one. But those sales were affected on purpose, deliberately, by the decision to release it in all these different colors because they know that the mega fans are going to buy it multiple times. So when you're considering the first week sales and the fact that it rockets it to number one, that's something else you have to take into account. Was even that an accurate picture of how popular the album was? Or was that a fifth of those sales and it was fans buying it five times, you know? So it was a very clever marketing ploy. They repeated the same kind of thing with number ones, remember? There was a different pose mm. on yes. each of the yep. covers. Yeah. Yes. And One More Chance was released as a single, certainly in the UK, in about five different formats. There were two different CD singles. There was multiple different vinyl versions of that single. It became something that they were doing with Michael Jackson releases was trying to get the fans to buy multiple copies of everything. Yeah. Well, the music buying public had, had gotten so young, you know, and the, you know, Michael's career is so long that, you know, he's seen it all by that era. The music buying public was Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, boy bands, Britney Spears, Ricky Martin on any criteria, sex appeal, youth, you know, all those criteria that, you know, those other acts hit so well, you know, Michael just, was waning, obviously. They had to come up with gimmicks. And even what you're talking about with the Kylie Minogue single thing, I've very, you know, I was in the US, but I, you know, the the UK fans were organized. These are the early days of the MJ fan community really sort of becoming this internet army. We were organized in an effort to try to take down Kylie's single, and we still lost. This is also the age of, uh, well, at that time, Napster. So record companies were doing a lot of these gimmicks as an antidote to online piracy, which they didn't know how to manage. Well, they still don't know how to manage. They can't manage it. I mean, the covers thing is a bit, uh, well, no, there were quite a few acts around that time that, that did that in addition to bonus tracks really started to become a thing. It is an interesting point. I do, yes, I've always wondered how much the marketing of, of those different covers really affected the sales. They had to do something to attract, you know, new MJ fans, because as, as you guys mentioned, the, the, the music buying public was young. And so they, they needed to uh, go for, and I think that's what they did. They went for those hardcore MJ fans, the fans like us who went and bought several copies that we were going to buy everything that was released. They also made a huge mistake with the lead single. Had they gone with a different one, it would have gotten a little bit more traction. Uh, it would have done a lot more in terms of attracting some of the younger fans 
and some of the casual MJ fans. Yeah, I think you're right. And you could see that kind of, um, and I guess we'll get to this when we start talking about the music, but Butterflies, when that, I, I can't remember what kind of single that came out as. It wasn't a typical single. I think it might have been only a radio single or something yes, like that. it was. And it was just before in um, Sony really just bailed out on any kind of promotion. But you could see a real groundswell of excitement for the song Butterflies. And I think if that song had come out with a video maybe, not that Michael presumably would have been looking that great in it, but if that song had have had a video and some heavy promotion, uh, I think it would have done really well. I agree. That song peaked at number 10 in the States and it was uh, just a radio single. Uh, and, and so uh, it was one of those songs that, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this when we get to it. It was a perfect Michael Jackson song and that should have been the lead single. There's one thing we should mention, um, context around all of this, which is September 11th. In a lot of ways, Invincible got a major free pass due to 9-11. So obviously, September 11th happened on September 11th of 2001. Uh, and then Invincible comes out on October 30th of 2001. And every, nobody's mind was on new entertainment media. You know, this sort of pseudo post-war America is not interested in the king of pop right now. Number one songs from that era include songs like Enrique Iglesias' Hero, which became this sort of weird anthem for first responders. An example of that free pass, Janet Jackson's All For You album, which was released in March of 2001, sold in its first week 605,000 copies in the U.S. Invincible, released post 9-11, October 30th, sells 303,000 copies its first week in sales. And obviously, Michael is the king. You know, Michael's always the bigger seller than his sister. That was not the case in 2001. And among the many things that, at least as fans, we were sort of you know, the free pass we were giving Michael was literally this post 9-11 economy. There's definitely some validity to that. But the other thing that we have to take into account is that Janet, by that point, was still cool and marketable and Michael just wasn't. When you were seeing Michael appearing in public around that time, it was just shocking. One of the first things he did on the promotional trail for Invincible was he went to the opening of the NASDAQ <laughs> stock exchange thing, if you remember that, yes. which was yes. kind of a weird, crazy, what, you know, what's that got to do with anything anyway? But he, when he, I remember seeing a photograph in the newspaper because I did not have the internet then. So a lot of my experience of this was through media. And I remember seeing a photograph of Michael at the NASDAQ opening and being really upset by it because he looked so, so, so terrible facially. And the other thing that I remember seeing a photograph of at that time as a teenage fan and being really upset by was when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame uh, by... And sync. <laughs> so I remember there was a picture, a close-up picture of Michael's face at that ceremony and just thinking, oh my God, he, I mean, he, it was really sad. It was really sad. The other thing that that's just reminded me of, because I was such a mega fan, when they showed the video on top of the pops, I actually put a VHS in the VCR and taped the video from the TV. And then every time somebody came around to the house, I would subject 
them to this video. <laughs> or if I was going round to family members' houses, I would take the video with me. I had an auntie. I still have an auntie who's a huge, you know, she was a massive Michael fan. She She's now in her mid to late 80s. So even at that time, she was like in her sort of mid to late 60s. And she was a huge Michael fan. And whenever there was a Michael concert on TV or something, she would tape it. And I knew that I was going to see her. So I took the tape with me and I showed her the video. I played the video. And the moment in the You Rock My World video where Michael finally looks up properly and speaks to Marlon Brando, that moment in the video, she let out an involuntary shriek and just went, oh my God, his poor face, his poor face. She was really upset by it. You know, she'd loved Michael since he was a little kid and she was just so upset by the state of his face in that video. So that was what the people trying to market Invincible were confronted with. So 9-11, yes, is is an issue, but you're also trying to market an artist in distress. You're trying to market an artist who does not look like they should be doing anything at the moment. They don't look well. They don't look capable of promoting their own album. And as far as it being to do with youth and new artists, just while we were talking a few minutes ago, I looked up a list of artists who had number one albums in 2001. Roy Orbison, Eva Cassidy, Eric Clapton, Aerosmith, Lionel Richie, Billy Joel, Donny Osmond, all had number one albums in uh, 2001 in the UK. I would disagree somewhat that, you know, Michael's poor sales are because only children were buying albums, you know? Well, Michael also had a number one album. You can't compare Bad Tour Michael Jackson to 30th anniversary of Michael Jackson. You know, obviously there's so many factors that go into, that come with being a musical athlete at your peak. And, you know, with Invincible, obviously we have all the anecdotes about Michael, you know, struggling to show up to work. We have anecdotes of, Michael having dancer's feet, I believe it's called. Michael once really complained to Corey Rooney about the pain he's in. That comes with, he's an old man now. You know, he's got sick kids. He always has a cold. His, you know, maybe some of his cosmetic decisions are catching up to him. For whatever reason, he was taking fashion advice from Elizabeth Taylor. He was out there looking like a grandma all the fucking time, all the fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's it's an old true. man. He's hanging out with the Bee Gees. He's an old man and he's not going to sell against... Christina Aguilar, look at even Janet had to play the game and she did pretty well for, you know, quite some time considering, you know, she was another artist going through that. She you know, is probably a better example, at least for at least that period of an artist who was able to successfully compete against the Britney Spears and the Christina Aguilera's and all the other things, you, Shakira's of the time. Michael could not do that. He was just, he was not to form in that regard. And he really had to sell himself on legacy and they did that. You see that in the marking decisions they made. So the 30th anniversary concert literally just might as well say legacy. You know, he's becoming a nostalgic act at this point. They released his new album with the five classic albums people actually want, like literally the same day, I believe. You know, this is a nostalgia act more so than it is. I don't think anyone was trying to really pitch this, not even Michael himself, as a, as a truly contemporary effort from, from Pop's King. You know, it's almost as if they gave up on it before they even put it out. 
you could see it in his face. Like he, he never smiled throughout this entire era. He hated the whole thing. He couldn't smile throughout this entire era. That was the problem, right? So it's kind of a false equivalence that you're setting up because I'm not saying that Michael needed to be the bad tour, Michael Jackson. I'm just saying he needed to look like a normal human being at that time that was aspirational because so much of selling yourself as an artist is about being aspirational. And you can't imagine not only kids in 2001 – I can't imagine anybody Michael's own age. And by the way, he wasn't an old man. You're calling him an old man. He was in his early 40s. Like what person in their early 40s was looking at Michael Jackson in the You Rock My World video and saying, I wish I was Michael Jackson? Nobody, you know, because he looked, it was sad. It was sad to look at him, you know, and that you can't sell an artist that people don't want to look at because it makes them upset. And it's not, I'm not saying he was like hideously disfigured or anything. I'm not saying that his appearance was distressing, but what I mean is people were looking at Michael Jackson and thinking of what he used to be. Mm. And it, this was not just an aging process. This was not, Oh, Michael Jackson's got old. This was, Oh my God, what has happened to Michael Jackson? Charlie in the States, the only classic artist that had number ones uh, with the Beatles and Michael Jackson, Garth Brooks, and maybe Dave Matthews Band. And so uh, I think it, it was a situation in the States that, that they were trying to market him against a younger audience. And, you know, and I, I, I agree with you, Charlie, that he didn't do himself any favors with how he looked and how he was acting in public. I think about the Times Square album signing. He just didn't look happy. Uh, he looked like he was going through the motions and he just looked out of it. And so there was just a lot of odd things that was going on that really did not help. That album was only number one for one week. He was seen as a, an artist past his prime. And that's the reality. Yeah, that is the reality. Nevertheless, Invincible is an album that has some good moments in it, like we've talked about. You know, of course, there's a lot of songs in there we can go back and forth on, but there are some shining moments in there. And I think it's time we dig into the tracks on Invincible. Now, there's 16 tracks in total. It is a long album, but let's kick it off by talking about Unbreakable. Now, I think Unbreakable is a good song. On first listen, I struggled to really vibe with the first time I ever heard it, but it definitely grew on me over time. It's got a great beat. It's extremely rhythmic. It's catchy. It's repetitive. It's clearly inspired by Notorious B.I.G.'s Unbelievable. It's built around that similar keyboard groove. And fittingly, Biggie appears in a posthumous rap lifted from You Can't Stop the Rain by Shaquille O'Neal, which is placed into the song. And over time, this song really has grown on me. I love Brandy's background vocals in there as well. I think it could have done well as a single. I kind of disagree, actually, with Michael's decision that it should have been the first single from the album. I, I'm i not so sure it, it had the potential to reach number one like some of the other really catchy songs on the album. Sony was obviously keen on the song to some degree in the album's conception because when you look at the sticker on the original Invincible cd pressing on the front it says 16 all new songs over 77 minutes of music including you rock my world cry and unbreakable so sony must have had in their minds at some point that they were going to release it as a single in my opinion i agree i think it's a very powerful song a great opening track and like you i really love the chorus with michael and uh, and brandy it's great rhythm 
it sticks to the typical themes that Michael likes to talk about. So I absolutely love this song. And it's the first three songs that I absolutely love on this album. And this really kicks it off well. See, that's interesting. So I, I very much agree that Unbreakable is a very good starter. It does set the tone for the album, but I really feel its impact is diminished by the next two songs. But usually halfway through Invincible, as in the song, I've got a headache because I'm just absolutely slapped in the face with these really hard beats. And they sound like they're just kind of variations of each other. And I mean, we'll, we'll get into this with the outtakes, of course, but as great as all three songs are on their own, I just don't think they work well together. And when you consider a song like Escape could have opened the album, these aren't songs that I, I typically go out of my way to listen to. As far as whether or not Unbreakable should have been the first single or not, I mean, I do believe, you know, Michael has earned his stripes. And if the artist at Michael's caliber wants Unbreakable to be, you know, the lead single, then you should probably listen to your artist. However, if I were a decision maker in the room and I got to pick the lead single, I probably would not have chosen Unbreakable. And I probably would have gone with Rock My World. I think that was probably the best they could do as the lead single, in my opinion. So I sort of, I feel sort of bad saying that because I disagree with Michael on this one, but... I disagree with Michael on this one. Although I do think, you know, I, I do think Michael would have made this his flagship track one way or another with the short film he was planning. I think he did have a cool vision for it. And going back to what you said about those three tracks, John, there is something about it that we always seem to put the three together as a sort of like its own, almost like it's its own EP. It's like the Dark Child EP or something. Mm-hmm. It's essentially it was, a medley. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's a great point. They are kind of the same, but at the time, they really did sound like the future that Michael was selling. And like, they Mm. really, like, they have not aged well. They really have not at all. I mean, even kids who are non fans, the kids who used to like bully me for liking Michael Jackson would like not literally bully me, but like, you know, kind of harass me for a little bit. Even a couple of them like came to me saying, like, those, you know, speaking of Heartbreaker, I think specifically, thinking it just sounded like, you know, amazing. And at the time, it really did sound like, real breakthrough they really did i also think that unbreakable in terms of its subject matter was pretty poignant to be the opening track of the album we've got to remember that michael had been through a lot the decade prior and i know that he had released history which was a direct response to the child molestation allegations but michael had had a tough decade and he'd been gone for a while as well you know between late 94 and then um you know, Invincible, that's like a good six years. And there'd been a tour in between, but he'd been through a lot. So to come back with a song that had a strong message of, you can't touch me, I'm unbreakable, I'm the king, I think that was a really strong message and a cool way to start the album. That's what stuck with me, just the way he was singing it. The song packed a punch. It's the only song of the three where the actual rap verse fits the song. And the other two, I'm not... They could have done away with the rap verses. This is the only one where everything on it is perfect. I agree with you guys that that it shouldn't have been the first single, but it should have been a single. To pick up on what you said, Jamin, about this being something of a statement, you know, reflecting on Michael's return, let's say, would it have been more poignant if he had actually written the song? Because he is one of nine writers on this song. Yeah, I would agree. And the thing is, too, the credits on Invincible are actually quite 
deceptive. Michael's listed as a co-writer on a number of songs, but we've since heard the demos of a number of these songs leak. Mm. For example, um, Threatened. I think Rodney Jerkins played the Threatened demo for the first time on his Instagram just within the last six months. And it sounds essentially just like the finished product. It's just got LaShawn Daniels singing instead. So unfortunately, one of the other sadder parts of the Invincible story is that Michael was less engaged with these songs as an artist than he had been on pretty much any other album he'd released. I think as fans, sometimes we tend to make excuses for Michael. And I often go back to saying that, you know, Michael was a single father during this time. And he was dealing with, like you said, kids with colds and all kinds of things he'd never dealt with before. And getting anything done when you're a new father is a really, really tough thing. I can say that from experience, let alone putting together an album to follow up history. John, I think it's just a reality we have to face that, yes, Michael had less to do with these songs than he had other songs before. Mm. Yeah, well, I think that that's a problem throughout the album, actually. Another one that came out in demo form subsequently was Whatever Happens, which Michael has listed in the album booklet as a co-writer of, and the song is identical in the demo that Michael had nothing to do with. The whole album feels somewhat like Michael is phoning it in. I remember it was reported somewhere that You Are My Life had originally been presented to him as you are my world and he changed world to life and mm. then took a credit <laughs> you know so this is and madonna was famous for that mm. for years in the industry she had this moniker that used to follow her around which was change a word and take a third and michael ended up kind of i mean we know that he'd kind of done that before on other albums where he'd been listed as a writer on songs that people had basically given to him fully formed but it's the whole album almost in this instance i think as far as the message of unbreakable it kind of backfired because you're kicking off your album with a song called unbreakable and yet the man that is promoting the album looks completely broken Mm -hmm. And I remember that it did leave him open to a lot of ridicule in the media, as did the album title, Invincible, particularly when after the first week, the sales collapsed and it fell out of the charts very quickly. It was kind of like, oh, what a big head. You know, he's called himself Invincible and the album's died on its ass. And even Craig, who I can't bear, Craig David, who's a UK R&B artist, at that time was about 19 years old or something and had had one album out in his career and he was all over the TV saying that Michael was stuck in a time warp and that the album was embarrassing and that the, the title was embarrassing and so on. I definitely disagree that Unbreakable and the tracks that followed it sounded like the future. I think the general consensus among the fans that... Um, I was in touch with in the UK was that the songs kind of sounded dated before they'd even come out. They sounded very much like stuff that Jerkins had done for other artists previously. And there was also an element of a granddad walking around (laughs) in trendy trainers and saying, look how young and cool I am. You know, I mean, it was kind of embarrassing because it was not credible. You know, you've got this music that sounds very young and very urban, and the artist whose picture is all over it 
kind of looks like Joan Collins had a love child with Joan Rivers, and it just was not working. It was all about this massive problem of this dichotomy between the music that was being released, which all sounded like it had been written and recorded by 20-year-olds, because it had, and then the face on the CD was of this kind of disfigured-looking guy that didn't really look like he knew where he was half the time in 2001. I think the concept for the video sounded interesting. I remember Planet Jackson had some info that it was Michael's concept. It doesn't sound good in hindsight, but Michael's concept at the time was that it was going to star Mel Gibson. Michael was going to be performing new liquid dance moves, whatever that means. So it would have been kind of interesting to see what became of that. But my recollection is that this was part of the dispute with Sony because the budget for the video that Michael wanted to put together was so astronomical that Sony just said, we're not paying it. And this all contributed to the breakdown of the relationship. But I definitely, like some of you, I definitely view those first three songs as kind of a blob. And it's almost like they're all versions of the same song and they couldn't decide which one was better. And then when Michael Prince played, I think it's called Get Your Weight Off Of Me or something, that's basically the same Mm. song again. It's basically just number four of the same song. It's a big blob of noise, overproduced, aggravating, cacophony, which I agree is not aged well, and it didn't even sound particularly good at the time. And I'm going to have to really disagree with you on on that, Charlie. But uh, what I will agree is that this album does have the feel of Michael pulling a bunch of people together in a room saying, hey, give me your best Michael Jackson song and then sending them out and then having them come back with songs that, you know, sounded like him. You don't get that. You know, it doesn't feel like he's vested in it. You know, those first three songs, I really do think, you know, set the tone. I mean, coming off the history album, which in my opinion, you know, is Michael Jackson at an artistic peak. In many ways, this is the follow-up to the history album. And it certainly is in the timeline. I'm glad on the dance floor, you know what that is. So this is the new Michael Jackson material after that follows history. And we went from an artist who put his soul and poured everything into an album to Invincible, which is the guy who maybe showed up to work for the day and approved a few things, stepped up to the mic when they needed him, Yep. And then kind of stepped away. That's invincible. <laughs> it's a, it truly is just a product. It's a product. Yes. Moving on, guys. Heartbreaker. Now, with this song for me, I think it represents all of the worst attributes of this group of three that we're talking about that start the album off. I feel like it is just an absolute mess of a production. I feel like it hasn't aged well I can't relax and listen to these first three songs, really. They just demand your attention, and then it's just hard to get into the groove of them. There are times when I can listen to them and and enjoy parts of them, but most of the time I don't gravitate towards these Michael Jackson songs at all. And I think Heartbreak sort of encapsulates that. I've heard it be called really cringy things over time, like dubstep before it Mm. was dubstep and just... Yeah, yuck. I'm not a fan of this one. Sorry if you guys are. The only thing I like about it are the the vocals, Michael's vocals and harmonies, I actually think, and the bridge, his the vocal performance on the bridge. I think there's some really impressive stuff going on vocally, the beatboxing. It's almost as if these first three songs need 
And Charlie, I know you hate remixes, but it's almost as if these three songs need somebody to come in and give them a much more sparse production to let the vocals breathe. I completely agree. And I, yeah, the assessment that this is some kind of early dubstep just absolutely makes me cringe. This is representative of what Timberland was pretty much doing at the time. In fact, years earlier, you listen to Junior Wine Pony, it's mm-hmm. essentially the same thing. That's not the least irredeemable aspect to this song. We have to mention Fats. That's F-A-T-S. This rapper that had just signed with Sony, I don't know what that eventuated to aside from a couple of songs on Invincible. When Michael and Darkchild reworked Cheetah from The Bad Sessions, Fats also features on that song contributing a rap verse. So if two doses of Fats wasn't enough, well, I've got good news for you. There's more in the vault. Uh, I guess then I'm going to be the outlier here because I think there are three perfect songs on this album and Heartbreaker is one. I love the energy behind the song. I feel like this is, I can always draw a line back to the certain songs. You can just draw a line back to Michael's earlier work. The energy, the way he sings it, how rhythmic it is, how uh, how futuristic to me it sounds. Uh, it goes back to working day and night. It goes back to songs like Wanna Be Starting Something, where it just hits hard and it fits Michael's style, the way he likes to sing, what I think he was trying to do at the time. I think it's criminally underrated. It's almost like I can't let her get away from Dangerous. I can play this song loud and play it over and over and over again. The only drawback is, you're right, the rap verse in this one is absolutely horrible. You didn't need it. This is the perfect Michael Jackson song for the time and for the album. And so now I'll I'll step back and I'll be the punching bag. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, Sean. Even even like I'm not here to dog any of these tracks. They're all great songs, and they really and Heartbreaker was a lot of fun when it came out. It's still not that bad today. It hasn't aged that great. Yeah, and and a song like Can't Let Her Get Away is a great comparison. Like it's not meant. They're not all meant to be. You know, Will You Be There? Flagship, amazing songs that we worship. Some of them are just here. Literally, Michael Jackson's version of filler tracks, and it's fine. It's great. It's wonderful. There are certain fans who appreciate it. If he had released this as a single or the first single, I would have been okay with this one. This, to me, I can draw that line back to his other songs and I could see exactly what he was trying to do here. This fits him perfectly. I mean, perfect is definitely not a word I would use to describe um, (laughs) Heartbreaker. But I do think that the bridge is possibly the vocal highlight the whole album is just a shame it's in the middle of a hideous song i think the the problem again this is something i'll probably come back to again and again when i'm talking about invincible but for me the big problem is the chasm between the lyrical and musical content and the artist that we're supposed to find it credible is delivering that lyrical and musical content. So when you have Michael Jackson talking about 
you know, this torrid love affair with this woman and oh, I'm onto her game now and I'm going to play her the same way. And then you're seeing <laughs> Michael staggering up the Madison Square Garden red carpet, you know, with like looking like he's been shot with Homer Simpson's makeup gun. And, you know, it's like this, how am I supposed to find this even 1% credible? This is not credible. I don't believe in Michael Jackson singing this. I don't believe he's lived through this. I don't believe he has any experience of this thing that he's delivering to me. So it was almost like it was a very strange album. Someone described it to me once as being like some aliens in the future had found some way to put Michael Jackson's voice on anybody's song and they just found some like 20 year old R&B singer's song and put Michael Jackson's voice on it. It's just there's no marriage between content and artist. And it's very jarring. Charlie, I'm going to have to jump on you for that one because I've heard you say that sort of thing before about Michael not being credible in some of his music. This is a guy that makes feature films about going underground at Neverland and finding a drug lord who's surrounded by spiders or turning into (laughs) a, you know, like a transformer robot. And like, I don't think credibility was ever a requirement for Michael's success. You know, there was a disconnect between his lyrical content. I never needed my Michael Jackson to be credible. And when I hear Michael Jackson singing about a love song like that, it's kind of like, it's like a character. I'm not even thinking of Michael as in Michael Jackson in my head. It's a character he's taking on. Well, I mean, if you had ever heard me suggesting that the plot of Moonwalker was credible or good, <laughs> then that might be a reasonable criticism of my position. But I certainly have never gone out of my way to say that I think Moonwalker is a fantastic film. I mean, for me, I just don't see what the point is. You know, Michael's not a Broadway actor. Michael is supposed to be a soul singer, essentially at his core, a soul R&B singer. And it's just like, what is the point? You know, it's a bit like James Brown releasing an album of, of army chants or something, or Britney Spears releasing an album of Essa James covers. What is the point it's not credible it's just a waste of everybody's time so for me it's just like how am i supposed to be invested in this when it clearly is from a a completely different planet than the one that michael inhabits with something like for example you rock my world you rock my world harks back to the kind of adolescent joyful slightly naive romantic Michael that you might be able to just about invest in. But some of the content on Invincible is so sort of aggressively sexualized or hyper-masculine that to me it just doesn't work. I will say this thematically. To me, this is similar to working day and night. And I can tell you that when that song came out, you know, you weren't thinking about the credibility because we knew that Michael Jackson wasn't working day and night like most <laughs> middle class, <laughs> middle class men. And, and, and again, Michael wasn't thought of at the time as very masculine, except when he hit the stage. That's why I can make that connection there with those two songs. And I think that's why I believe it's a perfect song because it's an extension of that theme and an extension of what Michael 
love to do with his music. Okay, moving on to the third Dark Child song to open the album, Invincible. Similarly to the other two, or really to Unbreakable, this kind of leans into a heavily hip-hop groove. Michael delivers a song about unrequited love. The thing about this song is it's kind of a little slower than the other ones. It's still, though, production-wise quite messy, I find. Again, it's got some great vocal performances throughout, but I don't know. It's sort of one of those ones where, John, like what you said before, when you stack it up against some of the songs that didn't make it on the album, like Escape, any of these three songs could be replaced by, say, that song, and the album would be way better for it. One cool thing in it is the little Prince diss in there about um, <laughs> buying diamonds and pearls, but they can't do it like me. I thought I thought that was a pretty clever thing to put in there, just to continue that little Prince uh, competition back and forth that had been going on for years. I think this is probably the better example of the three of Rodney's production style blending itself with Michael's vocal harmonies. but. All in all, I still find it to be a very, very unnecessarily complicated, messy production that would have been better off uh, not being on the album. I think it's a fun song. There's nothing you know, remarkable about it uh, other than it's just, a, to me, a very fun Michael Jackson song. And I do, I like you, Jamie, I, I like the, the reference to Diamonds and Pearls. I, I think this really does complete the first three songs, you know, that, that the triumvirate, I should say, uh, to start this out. I don't have a problem with it. I, I can listen to the first three tracks over and over again, and I think this is, is just a, a, a great song. My only comment about the song is more of a memory. I, I remember the fans on the forums and the boards online really praising this song for its vocal performance and I think I can see why, like Michael, you know, hits some high notes that he kind of, you know, in general, I think a lot of Invincible has a much rougher voice for Michael. So it's sort of mm-hmm. in the context of his whole career, it's sort of hard to say what's a good vocal performance. But I think for this sort of genre, for this sort of hip hop-esque sort of song, Michael does impress vocally, I think. Well, uh, for me, this is the point in which I reach for the paracetamol and turn my head sideways to let the earwax fall out. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to me, Invincible just sounds like an industrial accident, to be honest. (laughs) Um, Jamin said that any of the first three songs could have been replaced by Escape and it would have made the album better. I would argue that replacing all three with Escape would have made it even better. I don't know why anybody would say it's a good vocal. That just bewilders me completely. I've also personally never been completely convinced that that line is actually a Prince diss. I don't think Michael even wrote it, and it just seems like a a crappy, lazy rhyme as opposed to anything clever. Also, not wise for Michael at that point to have been picking arguments with Prince. I mean, it's just a, a mess for I think it's the worst of the first three songs, for sure. Although that is a somewhat <laughs> of a race to the bottom. <laughs> See, uh, I, I guess I I don't know. Maybe I I just like these three songs because it's just and this one too is just fun. I like the little the chorus. Maybe it's just me, and maybe I'll you know when this is you know when you release. Try. I want to know what circle you were hanging out with back in two thousand one <laughs> because no Michael Jackson fan I had ever met until in the until this all of this sort of MJ, whatever you want to call this, you know, kind of awakening. At least for me, in my personal experience, this is all 
happening in hindsight. Those in my little bubble, every fan I know for as long as time has gone on have been okay with these songs and have been okay with a lot of invincible and have been okay with even the man during this time. It, it, and there's something about the invincible era in general. And these three tracks probably sum it up that it's just a desperate effort of an aging, somebody trying too hard, having near hits, but for the most part, they're, you know, they're near misses. They're just misses. I think at the time, something did register. Something did feel great. And, the idea that MJ fans don't like these songs is kind of news to me in a lot of ways, relative news in the last couple of years. Well, the direction that the album went in with these three songs was actually different to the direction that Rodney himself wanted to go in with them. When Rodney first pitched to Michael Jackson, and in fact, for the first year or more of them working together, Rodney was going back in that sort of old school, retro, modernized, off the wall vibe with with songs like You Rock My World. And for whatever reason, Michael was the one in the later stages of the production to reject that direction and want to go futuristic and with this completely new unheard sound. I think it was a misstep. I think the fans by that point were really wanting to hear that happy, fun, modern soul, Michael Jackson, that we got with You Rock My World. More of that, I think, would have been better on the album. I'd also just point out that in contrast to Dangerous, there's so many new Jack Swing songs on there, but they don't outstay their welcome like these three do, for me at least. I I feel as though this is kind of Britain, the Aussies versus the Americans here, but I think that's a very apt comparison. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Unbreakable is what, nearly seven minutes long? It just goes on and on and on. And it doesn't need to because you get to a point where it's not going anywhere. It doesn't get any bigger or any better. The intro is just bizarre as well. I don't know what that's all about. The songs are too samey, too noisy. There's too many of them and they're too long. If they'd been four minutes each, it might have been more palatable, but it is just a bit like somebody sticking a metal dustbin over your head and then hitting it with a sledgehammer for 15 minutes. Yeah, and yet there's other Michael Jackson songs, say, for example, Money, where the last minute of that is just a groove and ad-libs and harmonies, and you don't want it to finish. You want it to go for another two minutes. absolutely, because it's not as abrasive. These songs, it's like having somebody drilling in your ear. I mean, they're just so cacophonous and noisy and kind of ugly. They're not pleasant to listen to. It is like a fucking toolbox falling down a flight of stairs and home alone is horrible. Oh it's God. just noise. How many of these have you written, Charles? I'm going to be the outlier here. They could have tagged on another two minutes of heartbreak and I would have loved it. So I just felt like he was, but those three songs, he wasn't trying to do too. I felt like he wasn't trying to do too much. It was the perfect three to start this album at this point in his career. They were fun and I'm glad there were only three. So as opposed to with Dangerous, where you got that, you know, the first five or six tracks where he just kept hitting you with the new Jack swing. But for this one, I like the first three. Don't tell me you guys haven't caught yourself dancing to these songs or in the car, you know. Exactly. Belting them out, about like, you know, the top of your lungs. Of course, all three of them. All three At, of them. Yes, that's what so, I'm saying. So what does that mean? That means something. You know what I mean? That was certainly something that Michael Jackson always went for with his songs. And at certainly at some era in our life, we were all grooving to these and blaring them and partying to them like they're Michael Jackson songs. No doubt about it. At least in my world. Okay. Yeah, not not in mine. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm loving this back and forth. It's great. I can just imagine our listeners right now listening to the episode wanting to jump in and choose a side. <laughs> I love this stuff. <laughs> now, there's a cool little story that I've got to share with you guys. And I'm hoping you're familiar with Velo Christina, who's who's been on uh, this season of the MJ cast, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. I would strongly recommend following her. I will link you to her account because yesterday she found something crazy interesting. So, you know the story, how the story goes that Rodney Jerkins, when he was creating those first few tracks of Invincible, was being sent out to junkyards by Michael to record all kinds of weird samples. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know the sound that starts the Invincible song? That really weird sounding kind of like, like a yeah. me- metallic sound. Yeah. Okay. So, Christina often goes to Neverland. She sort of walks around it and hikes and all that kind of stuff. And she found a cattle gate on the edge of the property, I think, at Neverland. And she opened it and closed it. And I kid you not, it sounds like stupidly similar to the start of that song. <laughs> she put it on Instagram yesterday and we'll share it on our social media shortly. It is just weird. That's cool. I bet it is. I haven't heard it, but I, that's so cool. That's so cool. And there is a level of craftsmanship on Invincible. I don't think it's necessarily fair for, you know, uh, they worked hard on it. And I think it was just a miss. They really created an album that does sound very different from anything else on the market at that time or even today. Those, especially the Jerkin songs, like they really do stand out. And you do have to admire that, you know, if they're out there recording gates and junkyards and stuff. That's cool. But it's also that, like little tidbits like that. Now that I know that the opening to Invincible is the sound of a gate opening at Neverland. Maybe. I'm going to listen. <laughs> maybe. Well, I. It's my reality. That's the one I'm living in from now on. <laughs> but it's finding out little things like that which just open your ears a bit more and give you that little bit extra appreciation and so that that's also another aspect to invincible which contributes as to why i don't think it's that much of an interesting album but as time goes on and we hopefully hear more and more about the production of it perhaps there will be a greater appreciation at least from my end yep Completely agree. Let's move on to Break of Dawn. So we finished those three upbeat tracks that start the album, those Dark Child productions, and then we move straight into a Dr. Freeze song, Break of Dawn. And I believe, in my opinion, this is one of the best songs on the album. This is one of my favorite songs. I know, Charlie, you got issues with the credibility side of it, but when you're thinking about the mood and the ambiance that this evokes, I think it's absolutely gorgeous. I can just imagine it's sort of twilight as this song is playing. It's just beautiful. I love the vocal performance. One of my favorites. This is one of the first songs that Michael Jackson played Tommy Mottola in the production process of the album, and and it blew away the Sony executives when they were having a listening party around what the album could sound like. This is, in my opinion, a really welcome shift in tone for the album after getting through those three songs. I love it. There is a bit of contrast, though, between Invincible and Break of Dawn, which is a bit of an adjustment for the listener, but a very, very good song and one of the highlights of the album for me. On the odd occasion when I play the Invincible album, this is where I start. That beautiful ethereal fade in before that hard-hitting beat comes in. I love the Dr. Freeze songs, and their vocals work so well together. They're so textured. There's 
I don't know how to describe it exactly, but this song was uh, originally called Twilight, and apparently when Michael heard the demo, he didn't want to change a thing. But the demo has actually leaked online, so I encourage people to check it out. It's definitely evolved. The original demo does sound great, but this is definitely a uh, Jacksonized version of, of what that was. And interestingly, Dr. Freeze has commented in interviews about how engaged Michael was during those sessions. And that's such a contrast to what we've briefly heard about the Dark Child sessions. And that's reflected in the material, I think. Well, I'm going to say that this is a decent track. When we start talking about the ballads on the album, I I just think this is subpar uh, in terms of what I wanted Michael to do and what he actually really could do. This one is where you, if, if you're going to question credibility, this is the one where like, eh, I'm, I'm not really seeing Michael, you know, making love to the break of dawn. Not that I need to, but this is just not a, a song that I really got into. I could skip this one. I think if you look at Invincible as an album, Sean, and sort of lens on that point, break of dawn to me was always sort of like, I don't know, like the lady in my life or maybe even the I Can't Stop Loving You, like it's the crooner song, even though it's definitely like an R&B crooner, if that's even a thing. Imagine the lady in my life vocal, that era Michael singing this song. Like I, in some ways, I think it's a very well-written song. It's a very well-written song for that Michael Jackson. Michael vocally sounds like he's struggling throughout it. Throughout it. Like it's a love song where like the guy is kind of, sounds like he's strangling a little bit to sing. And I agree with that point. So, and I agree that, you know, you can look at this and, and think Lady in My Life, but Lady in My Life, Michael just sounds pure. He's not struggling. And this one, he does sound like he's struggling. The vocals are just not up to par for this song. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the case for a number of songs on the album, actually, that Michael's voice sounds to be in really quite bad shape. Like Sean, I have problems again with the chasm between material and artist. Am I able to envision Michael Jackson walking through the park and making love till it's dark? No, it's not credible. It's crazy. It was a crazy idea to release this stuff. It wouldn't have been so bad, like you say, if it had been the thriller era or something, but it just was so alien to what anybody was able to envisage Michael's world being when they looked at him at this point. It was just like, who does he think he's kidding? It just makes no sense at all as a song choice for a Michael Jackson album at that time. It might have done at the time it was recorded. It depends when it was recorded. But by the time of release, certainly it was not making a lot of sense. What if he sang about making love in his giving tree? Would that have worked for you? (laughs) (laughs) well you know this is because two years later he's walking around with Bashir and says something like oh my favorite thing in the world to do is climb a tree or something and Bashir says more than making love and Michael just has no answer to that and when you're looking at Mike you know it's so sad I don't I don't want to come across like I'm being uncharitable or mean about Michael because I'm not. And I really, I just feel so sorry for Michael in so many ways, but this is not an attack on Michael. This is 
it was not real. It was not believable. You know, poor Michael at that time just looked so sad and forlorn and damaged and and depleted and lonely and isolated and living in this other world where he just invites kids up to play on his train and tells Martin Bashir that his favorite thing to do is throw water balloons. And it's sad, you know, but it's it, that reality does not marry up with a lot of the material on the album. And I think for the public, that was becoming an issue because they were not able to invest in Michael Jackson in the way that they were during the off the wall or the thriller era where the lack of knowledge about how damaged he was as a human being allowed them to buy into the pretense a bit more. It just sounds forced. This song, Charlie, if you, you know, I, I agree with you to me, it just really sounds forced. And, and, and even the next song, heaven can wait. I just think those two really do sound like Michael was trying to, you know, capture, you know, that young audience and capture that young sound. It didn't fit him at all. Break of Dawn, though, has a, a little bit of an interesting legacy because it got kind of a second wind when the album Number Ones came out, the compilation album Number Ones. And I think that Michael must have believed in this song himself enough to put it as, I think it was either the final track or the second final track on Number Ones, just before One More Chance. I'm not sure why it was included in there. It certainly wasn't released as a single from Invincible. Maybe there were plans to try and release it as a single again later on. But nevertheless, either the record label or Michael believed in it enough. The next song that follows on from Break of Dawn is Heaven Can Wait, a similar song in a lot of ways, a love song. It's a good pairing with Break of Dawn, but I don't think this song's uh, anywhere near as strong. I'm still a believer in Break of Dawn. I still like it, but this one I can't get with. It's a kind of an awkward song that really... It's just weird how it starts with the chorus, like you're straight into the chorus of the song right at the beginning. I feel like a lot of the weakest songs on this album come from those late Teddy Riley sessions at Virginia Beach where he's doing Heaven Can Wait, 2,000 Watts. I think he did Don't Walk Away There. And yeah, all of the Teddy Riley songs, I feel like they just could have been left off. Hmm, interesting. I, I quite enjoy this song. Uh and I'm embarrassed to admit, I only found out yesterday that Dr. Freeze is doing the background vocals, which here I am fawning over how they sound, but it's taken me 20 years to notice. I think it has one of the best vocal performances on the album. It's interesting. I know someone who has a few session tapes from Invincible, and he once revealed to me that when they were recording the end part where he does his screamy vocals, his voice actually cracked and they had to wrap up the session, which as um, a lot of fans would know is is similar to when Keep the Faith was recorded as well. This was also issued as a kind of a radio single and it did quite well. It, it reached number 72 on one of the Billboard charts, so maybe there was potential for it. This is a subpar ballad. The vocals are, to me, again, certainly not up to Michael's standards. And it seems like he's really uh, struggling on this one. Uh, about the only thing that I like about it is that, you know, Michael tends to do this quite a bit in his later uh, albums is, you know, he, he throws back to something he used to say or used to sing in one of his songs. And so in this one, he, he sings uh, What You're Doing to Me, uh, which is a throwback to Walk Right Now. Uh, and so mm -hmm. that's the only part of this song that, that I like. 
he reaches back to some of his old tricks and ad libs. But other than that, this is not a good song for me. It's a nice song. I like it. And I think that's all I have to say about it. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to uh, agree with Sean that it's, it's a terrible vocal. It's possibly, possibly the worst vocal of his career. Very possibly. One more chance might take that. I agree. But it's really bad. He uh, Maybe he had a cold or something. He just does not sound good. The song is very monotonous and is kind of a dirge. It sort of sounds like something that you would hear in a 1930s Disney film if there was a funeral or something. I mean, it's just so kind of, you know, horrible, really. And kind of dumb. I just find it kind of dumb in terms of like, oh, if I had a choice between being dead or being alive with you, then I'd choose being alive. It's like, well, duh. You know, (laughs) it's just kind of, why would you write a song about that? That's so goofy. So the whole thing to me just seems like a complete bizarre decision from the moment of conception. All right. We finish up Heaven Can Wait and then we're at a high point of the album with You Rock My World. I really feel like this is one of Michael's last great upbeat songs. I absolutely love it. I listen to it all the time. It's got to be one of my most listened to Michael Jackson songs. I loved it when it came out and I love it just as much today. My only slight criticism of the song is I wish it had real strings, not synth strings. It's evident of those really early recording sessions that Rodney was doing with Michael where they were trying to modernize that off-the-wall sound and bring back that fun-loving, upbeat, soulful Michael Jackson. It's great. High point of the album. I just wish there was more like it on there. Jamie, I agree. That's a it's a great mid-tempo track. I didn't think it should have been the, the lead single, but I think it fit him perfectly. There's nothing more I can say than that. I really do like this song. I agree, but I will say that there's something about it. The song could be a lot better if Michael didn't seem so detached from it. There's something about it where Michael just never really seems into it, like not even in the vocal take we have on the album. It's like the perfect Michael Jackson song if Michael Jackson were just in the room. And I wonder if it's because of the the tempo. You know, when I first heard it, I wanted it to be more upbeat, but then I actually liked the fact that it was that laid back. So it's just, there's something about the tempo where I like it, but... Sometimes it feels too slow at times, if that makes sense. For sure. It's interesting because when Sony leaked it to radio stations, they leaked it in a sped up form. I think it was sped up by about 4%. I don't know what exactly the reason for that was, but when it was premiered, that's the state it was in. Yeah, I think this is a perfect Michael Jackson pop song. It's essentially the second coming of remember the time for me it's not uncharacteristic of previous dark child songs like uh the boy is mine by monica and brandy or if i told you that by whitney houston and george michael it's as i believe the young people say a total bop Uh, and i I like that i like that reference to remember the time that is actually a great comparison Mm. am i going to be the first person to mention the intro because that is horrible such a calamity yeah it's so terrible that they did not make that a separate track on the album so you could get rid of it when you were putting it on a party or something because that's just so awful but the song is great 
I really love You Rock My World. It's a great song. I agree with Jamin completely. The only thing that would improve it, well, I kind of agree with James as well, but I think it one thing that would improve it exponentially is live instrumentation. After Michael died in August 2009, the Jazz Cafe in London had a tribute night to Michael Jackson where they had a live band playing Michael Jackson songs all night and rotating vocalists. And they played You Rock My World with a live band and it just sounded amazing and the crowd went crazy. It just would be so much better if the instrumentation was live and if it sounded more organic. I think some of it is, Charlie. Like, obviously, some of it's um, synthesizer. But in the last third of the song, John, you might know a little bit more about this, but the the hi-hat work at the end in the last third, that sounds like, you know, that sounds real to me. There's some cool stuff going on there in there as well. So, Charlie, you didn't like uh, hearing Michael say, yeah, she is banging. No, of course not. No, that was hideous. <laughs> I mean, the only, the lowest step was We Be Balling You. Oh, that was really terrible. Oh, Thank God that never got that? officially oh, released. Yeah. But we've got to talk about the video because I think, although there are clearly many problems with the video, there are flashes of greatness. And I think that first chorus where Michael kind of jogs up the stairs and then just busts out some he just it's just fantastic i mean it's only like 15 seconds or something but he looks great and the dancing is amazing and he looks right at the top of it is comparable to you know the way you make me feel kind of some of the moves that he's doing there they they just look fantastic and it's such a shame that the video it's almost like it was half made and then they had to cobble it together and put it out it could have been, I mean, he, you know, he, he does not look great facially, but I think that could have, with a better video, that could have been a much bigger hit. There was always rumors that the Unbreakable video was in some way going to be a continuation of the You Rock My World story. That was a legit rumor at the time, which is probably just the fan world's fantasizing, recognizing that there's something not right. Cause you're absolutely right, Charlie, when the video literally does, like, I can't even tell you what the story is really. Like it's, I kind of get it. Like, who are the characters? Like what's going on? Like if <laughs> we really don't know. And yeah, it, it's so unappealing. We talk about there being a real lack of youth with this era. He walks into a bar full of overweight men in singlets and then gets into like, <laughs> fights with them and it's just ridiculous it's just really like you watch it and it's a really unappealing setting that it's full of unappealing characters i like the the woman in it she's really she's really beautiful i kind of disagree with you charlie about the dancing in it as well i actually don't find it to be that innovative or fresh Mm. or modern a lot of it is recycled what about the bandwagon that looked like they were left out of smooth criminal yeah that section where he climbs up that first set of stairs, though, and then he stops at the top, those 15, 20 seconds are yeah. amazing. I prefer the bit when he jumps up on the bar and, and spins around on that, and I, I thought that was really cool. But, yeah, I don't know. Even the intro with Chris Tucker, it's this nostalgic act. It's the greatest hits package of MJ Tropes. No, bet you never Neverland, you can't. He's allowing himself in some way to become this legacy caricature that mom and dad liked. Which is exactly yeah. what it yeah, was. Like a yeah, I, I was going to say. Self-parody almost. Yeah, this video was so un-Michael Jackson-like. Uh, it was a caricature. And it's the one video that I have a really hard time watching. In fact, if it's on, I, I maybe watch 30 seconds of it and that's it. Yeah, I mean, there's 
a fundamental problem with it is, as we said earlier, that it does not make any sense where there's this section where Brando comes down the stairs and Michael says, I know who you are. And it's like, yeah, but we don't. Something's gone wrong. You know, this makes no sense. And then Brando says something like Big Bang and that's it. Yeah. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) You know, you can see on paper why the video would sound amazing. Marlon Brando, Chris Tucker, you took the dangerous choreography and smooth criminal and all of Michael's greatest hits, put them in a blender and call it a video. You would think it would be some amazing thing. And I I think that was literally the idea. Again, another product. Something went wrong. There's the story about them trying to get him to wear this fake nose or something. And Michael was really upset and the whole thing just got binned in this i think he just disappeared from the set after a certain point and it didn't get finished so i think that's possibly part of the problem there's also things when you watch it like people wandering around in the background sometimes that look kind of like they don't know they're being filmed or something (laughs) there's just lots of things about it that don't really uh, you know like the spin you know when he spins right before he gets up on the bar they just show the same spin like five times yeah, for some reason, just show it over and over again. You know, <laughs> and it, the other thing that's notable about it is it kept getting re-edited after it was released. So there's a version on the number ones DVD where there are screams from the ghosts video pasted in over the top oh, of it, God. and all kinds of mess going on. You know, it's, it clearly was something that was not finished, and they were trying to get it to a finished point, and they just couldn't yeah. do it. It didn't have very good dialogue. The director didn't do a great job. I think his name is Paul Hunter. What they needed to do is bring somebody in like Brett Ratner, who had a relationship with Michael and Chris Tucker at the time. He could have made a great little sort of rush hour vibe type video, same kind of idea, but a lot more effective. Also, it was it was definitely reported on Planet Jackson that it was Mel Gibson and Chris Tucker that were supposed to be in Unbreakable. So maybe there is some truth to it, supposedly being some kind of continuation or something. Yeah, that was definitely the fan lure of the time. We covered the song's performance at 30th anniversary in our last episode. Shall we mention it here? Or I, Just a funny story when we were there live and Michael was asking the audience, I don't know if you guys covered this in the round. I don't think you guys did. The song had leaked like just days before. I was literally playing it on the drive to New York, KTU was the radio station that leaked it. And all throughout Rock and World, it was KTU, the beat. That's what they would do. And interesting, you said the 4% thing, John. I'm going to check that out in hindsight. I think I still have that original file that leaked. He asks the crowd what song they want to hear. And literally nobody is saying you rock my world. Like literally nobody. Like everyone wanted, in fact, the song everyone wanted was Smooth Criminal. It was quite clear the consensus. Like, because he had asked a couple times. And I'm sure the YouTube videos, like the, the fan camera videos show this uh and he was like everyone's screaming smooth criminal and he's like you rock my world like <laughs> no no just that's it the only funny story from that concert <laughs> all right the next song to come on the album is butterflies another good pairing you rock my world and butterflies go really well together it's a beautiful neo soul song penned by andre harris and marsha ambrosius Uh, Like I said before, it should have been given the full force of a single release with a video. The song was already doing really, really well on the charts just based on really a a grassroots fan listening experience. And And I think it could have done a lot better with some support from Sony. The album could have been given a second win really with this song. And unfortunately, it wasn't. Great song, incredible performance vocally. I think it's one of the highlights uh, vocally from Michael's entire career. He really goes to places here vocally that he hadn't really been in, in any other song. 
Uh, I love it. I listen to it all the time. Uh, sometimes I think about what Michael would have been able to accomplish had he worked with some artists like Questlove, Jay Dillard, and James Poyser. You know, those guys who are producing hits for people like Erica Badu, D'Angelo, and Common. That whole Soul Quarian production team that did great stuff during the, the mid to late 90s. But he kind of did with this song. Like, this is his neo-soul song, and it's, it's spectacular. Mm, 100%. The entire album is worth it just for this track. I completely agree. It's possibly his best vocal performance. It's up there with Smile or Someone in the Dark for me. It's, it's just absolutely perfect. In fact, really, the only complaint I have about the song is that on one of the vinyls, there's the a cappella, but it's just Michael's lead vocal. It doesn't have all of those beautiful background vocals with it, but maybe one day that will leak. And yeah, the Neo Soul, Michael should have done more of it. This was more part of the second wave of Neo Soul, where for most of the song it's relying on its heavier hip-hop affectations rather than jazz. But then as it moves into the chorus, you have that beautiful French horns and strings coming in it's magical and i'd have to give a special mention to the track masters remix as well i quite enjoy that and Mm -hmm. there's also a mix of the song that was released on a compilation i can't remember what it's called but you can probably find it online if you look up butterflies promo mix and It's special because, firstly, the mastering is less aggressive than what really the entire Invincible album is, and there's a couple of extra seconds in the fade-out. So that's that's my go-to version for those extra seconds. This is my second perfect song uh, on this album. This, again, you can draw a line right back to Rock With You on this one. This is Rock With You perfection. This is where I feel... Michael should have settled in with his career at this point. And you're right. This is that Neil soul sound. This is that second wave of that Neil soul sound. But this is something that, you know, you just knew when, when Neil soul started to take off that if Michael ever decided to do a song like this, you know, it would be outstanding. And this is what it was. And so this is where, and I've talked about this before, I just wanted to hear him sing. And this is what he did. He was just singing. It wasn't anything extra. It was just his voice, and he just floated on top of the instrumentation. There is nothing about this song that is not perfect. To me, again, it's just one of those songs where, you know, you can put Rock With You on, followed up with Butterflies, and it just flows. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's amazing. Michael kills it. The vocal is incredible. He he brought his A-game. This is greatness on this track. It's a masterpiece. Great, great word, Matt. It is a masterpiece. It is. It's a spectacular vocal, but I definitely wouldn't use words like perfection or masterpiece. I think it's a spectacular vocal in search of a spectacular arrangement, which it doesn't quite get. I definitely agree with John that the the track is slightly aggressive. The beat sometimes, to me, is kind of drowning Michael out. I wish that Michael was at the forefront of this song and that his vocal was the star, but it kind of at times just feels slightly like it's buried under the weight of the track. 
is definitely one of the best songs on the album, but it just feels like such a, a near miss to me. Like all it needed was a slightly different mix and it would have been perfection. I'm just going to disagree. I think at the very beginning when he does a la 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 and he does it with his falsetto, even that he takes command of it. I think back to Michael singing alongside uh, James Jamerson on Darling Deer. You know, you got all this bass wizardry going on behind him, but Michael on top of it, they never get in the way. And so that's what I hear. You know, this song is perfect because, you know, you're right. It is a little bit, it's hard and aggressive, as you put it. But again, Michael's voice just floats on top of it. And I think it's just a perfect, I would definitely use the word perfect because I think it's a perfect mix. I definitely hear what you guys are hearing. And one recommendation, I don't know if it makes a difference in particular, but especially with a product, again, quote unquote, as mass appeal as a Michael Jackson album, they're usually best listened to in the format that they would have been mastered for, not just the format, but even the environment they were mastered for of its era. So, you know, we very much so live in a bass sensitive headphone era. Back when Invincible came out, you know, they would have been mastering this thing for automobiles large-scale hi-fi systems in living rooms. And that might change some of the factors here. But yeah, there's definitely like a mastering issue. Or I don't know what it is, but some things just kind of hurt. Some of the slaps hurt. John, what were you going to say? I, I was curious as to whether you've heard the original version by Floetry because what's on Michael's version is essentially the same and a lot of the elements are lifted directly from their version. What's most different is the beat. It is much louder on Invincible, I think, to make it more congruous with the rest of the album. But I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that if you have heard it. I definitely have, but it was probably 20 years ago or something. So I I can't honestly profess to remember it, but I'll check it out afterwards. I've heard it. Uh, it was released on one of their albums and I, and I have that one. But for me, it's one of the things like, you know, when Michael does a song, it's his song. And so it just sounded like they were doing a Michael Jackson song because I believe he owned it. So, you know, he, he owned the song. Uh, he did such a good job on it. All right. We're now coming up to the song Speechless. And for whatever reason, I, I think of the songs on this album kind of like in groupings, like Unbreakable, Heartbreaker, Invincible right there at the start. We've got Break of Dawn, Heaven Can Wait, You Rock My World, Butterflies. In my head, I kind of group them together. And then there's this giant gear change to Speechless, followed by another even more giant gear change to 2000 watts. But Speechless to me, it just, I don't know, there's something about it where it just, it's the first sign on the album that it's really not a cohesive album experience. This is a very saccharine song. It was inspired allegedly by a water balloon fight that uh, Michael had with the children of a Sony executive called Wolfgang Schlitter when Michael was staying in in Germany, in Hamburg, I believe. After this water balloon fight, he, he got on the phone to Brad Buxer and then they recorded it in two hours or something. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It's a good wedding song. It was one of the songs at my wedding, <laughs> but it's not... Yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't fit on the album for me. I know a lot of people think it's beautiful with a beautiful vocal and it's it's touching and it's from the heart and all of those things, but it's kind of like Heal the World to me. It's just, <laughs> yeah, please, yeah, enough. 
I'm 100% with you on this. I I mean, firstly, Michael wrote this song after having a water balloon fight. It's the most Michael Jackson thing I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> I really want to like it. And I think I like the idea of it, but it just gets too, like you said, saccharine. I guess, you know, whatever people's opinion of the song is, really, when I think of it, I think of seeing This Is It and hearing him sing that snippet, which was a special moment for whatever your opinions of the song or the film might be. But that's that's really all I think of when I think of this song. So, Jamin, I agree. Like you, I, I group these songs as well. You know, the first three, then Break a Dawn, Heaven Can Wait, You Rock My World, and Butterflies. And then uh, with Speechless, you get to the second half of the album. I group Speechless with uh, You Are My Life and Don't Walk Away as the ballads. And I actually have a love-hate relationship with Speechless. I didn't necessarily like it initially. I've gained appreciation for it over the years. I think it's a, uh, a perfect MJ ballad, and it, it harkens back to when Michael began his mature style. And I think that starts, for me, uh, with uh, 1975's Forever Michael. It's Michael in his pure voice, and he's singing. Uh, it's a little bit too dramatic at the end, which Michael tends to do. I have an appreciation for it. It's not the, the best song in the world, the best song on this album, but when I listen to it, I really think back to this is Michael just singing. And I like his voice on this, except for that last part where he says words like, I love you. And then it just, it just <laughs> that, that ruins it for me. <laughs> if he had just cut it off right before then, uh, I think it was a great sign. In fact, I often think of Be Not Always from the Victory album because I just thought that mm. was a, 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 I did not like that song. I still do not like that song. But I think this is a better version of what Michael was trying to do there. He's just trying to sing and he's just trying to, you know, evoke a lot of emotion in the song. And I think he gets it right on this one, but not on Be Not Always. I think this is the most authentic Michael Jackson song probably ever. Certainly the most authentic Michael Jackson song on the album up there with The Lost Children. I think this is the real Michael Jackson. So if you have an issue with Michael Jackson singing love songs, this is what Michael Jackson's actually thinking about. This is what Michael Jackson is actually really writing. For all the maybe flack I give Michael during this time for some of his more physical attributes being lost, like you know maybe his vocal ability or performing ability, his compositional skills show incredible wisdom. So this is where, you know, the other the other side of aging comes into play. And he's writing with a, a melodic purity that's almost ancient as he talks about. So this is an artist reaching an intellectual peak in a lot of ways. I think I mean that's all I see it's, I think it's the most marvelous thing ever. Like like it's amazing. <laughs> If you go back and listen to One Day in Your Life, this to me, it sounds like, again, the continuation. It's, like, it's almost like he's going back to that, to that style. And to me, One Day in Your Life was recorded when you know, he started that, that shift in terms of his maturity and his voice and things of that nature. So this is why I've, had, I've gained an appreciation for it. I think you're right. It is very authentic Michael Jackson. So Sean started off not really liking it and then gaining an appreciation. And I kind of had the opposite journey so i if you'd asked me a couple of years after the album came out i would have told you it was one of the best songs on the album and i loved it but what ruined it for me i think was when i read that it had been inspired <laughs> by a water balloon fight and i just kind of it's like you know it sounds like such an amazingly profound song and then you read, oh, it's about a water balloon. Find you go, oh, 
that's that song's not what I thought it was. It's kind of it's just about nothing. So I do have two more kind of niggles with it. The first one is that some of the lyrics are slightly hackneyed. Like it's as though I am standing in this place called hallowed ground. It's like he's just writing things to try and fill up a gap in a particular timbre and uh, has not really gone back to refine it before pushing it out. And then the other thing that always jars with me is I think at the end is they're not a really long note, but it's quite obviously copied and pasted so it's the same so he didn't sing the whole note and it keeps stopping and starting which is kind of jarring and annoying audibly and then yeah i'm not really a fan of the kind of snivelly bit at the end either i mean it is a lovely song which would have taken like not a lot to make it really really great but in the format in which it was released to me it's just kind of not there yet yeah, I, I guess I just sort of struggle with the contrast between this song and other songs on the album. And it's the same sort of criticism I have of any of Michael Jackson's later albums from Dangerous onwards, where in the 70s and the 80s, if you've got these tight packages of songs that are of in similar genres, then you get later in his career and you've got like Heartbreaker and Speechless on the same album, which are just so, so worlds apart sonically. And, you know, I mean, some people may see that as a strength with the versatility and the different songs on the album. But for me, I I find the contrast just really dramatic and difficult to jump between those songs in one listening experience. And that's uh, really evident in the next song that comes up as well. When you finish this song on such a, a dramatic saccharine note, with speechless and then immediately you've got this poor imitation of a backstreet boys song called 2000 watts that just oh my god like i don't know about you guys but this to me is the low point of the album michael doesn't even sound like michael on this song his voice sounds completely different i always assumed that he and teddy had like lowered the pitch of his vocals or something to make him sound deeper it just sounds terrible it's messy it's loud it's just obnoxious and i'm sorry if you like 2000 watts i think it's a low point on the album an absolute filler uh, sorry michael jamin <laughs> say no more sorry Danny. you have you have you have <laughs> you have you have captured just exactly how i feel about the song I think I may have listened to it twice in my life. So I don't think I ever need to go back and hear this song. This is not a good song at all. Uh, And I agree. It is a low point on this album and actually a low point in his uh, career. But Shout would have been lower. And this is the song that Shout, that replaced Shout on the track list. So this is literally, by that definition, the lowest point on the album. This is the one, you know, will slot you in. You know what I'm saying? And... It's definitely that. But it's still not bad for filler. It's Michael Jackson filler. It's great. It's still great. You can still groove to it. I think, isn't it You Are My Life that replaced Shout? Oh, you may be right about that. I may have that story wrong. Yeah. See, this is my thing. How can, this, because it was changed at the last minute, and I just think, really, you're going to have 2,000 watts and Shout on the same album? I mean, it's it's repeating the problem with the first few songs in my opinion but yeah, very similar i actually yeah. quite like shout i quite like shout but 
Yeah, 2000 watts. So this was written by Tyrese Gibson, who I understand is in the Fast and Furious films. I don't know. I stopped watching 20 sequels ago. But (laughs) yeah, he was working with Teddy Riley on it and Michael heard the song and apparently begged both of them for him to record it. So, uh, I mean, that's an indictment on Michael, if anything. And then I was reading Tyrese still called his next album 2000 Watts, despite the song not being on there. But anyway, I'm sure we'll get to that in the Tyrese roundtable. I quite <laughs> liked it. <laughs> I quite liked it when I was a kid, but, you know, you grow out of those things. Yeah, I mean, this is just a car crash. That actually also sounds like a car crash. <laughs> and... This whole thing about, you know, did it replace Shout or did Shout get replaced by You Are My Life or whatever. I mean, it's like, you know, the album is 16 tracks long. Just get rid of all of them because none of them deserve to be on it. That's the crazy thing. It's like, what was going on? Maybe it was a contractual. I just sometimes come back to this notion of the dispute with Sony and maybe he was just trying to pump this stuff out and tick boxes and get the hell out of that contract or something because there's so much on the album. It's like, imagine having a debate about those three songs and, oh, we're desperate to get them all on, but we're going to have to make this Sophie's choice of which one gets cut. It's like, they're all crap. Just get rid of them. <laughs> you know, I mean, this song is just a catastrophe, just a complete, I mean, vocally, musically, it's just hideous lyrically. <laughs> what even is it? What is it? It's just, it's just bananas. It's just insanity. So God no. I mean, if that's true that Michael begged to record it, then I, you know, I'd love to know what he was on that day because I'd like some. <laughs> <laughs> the vocals on this sound heavily processed. I remember the media, like the mainstream commentators, really sort of dogging this track for how processed Michael's vocals sounded. Yeah, there's definitely something weird going on, and I don't know if anyone's ever gotten to the bottom of whether it's Michael intentionally singing in a lower pitch or whether there is pitch down intentionally. I don't know what is going on, but it doesn't sound like him. I don't like it. So I feel a bit bad now because for the rest of the album, we've sort of got songs that I feel kind of the same about. Like there are some good moments in here, which we'll get to, but You Are My Life is another song that I just, I don't really have any desire to go and listen to again. It's a baby face pen song, which is, I think it's also got, um, who's the, who was Michael's manager? John McClain, the estate guy. Yeah. They co-produced it, right? I'm pretty sure. So John McLean came up with the instrumental when he was tuning his guitar or something, and then he got Babyface and Carol Bayer-Sager to write lyrics to it. Thank you, John. Thank you. And then Michael changed. <laughs> and then, as I think Charles mentioned, Michael changed it from You Are My World to You Are My Life and got you know 33% of the writing credit. I don't have too much to say about this song other than I think it's a really, really mediocre song and i don't feel myself ever having a desire to go back and listen to it i think when you listen to this song this is a uh, a typical babyface song so you'd heard it before you've heard the the same sound that same la reed and babyface sound but again what i like about this song is it's michael just singing 
Again, I group this with Speechless and Don't Walk Away as just those like three beautiful ballads on an album that we've not heard Michael sing since, again, 1975 and Forever Michael. You've never got this many songs, these this many ballads from Michael on an album like this. And so I appreciate it. Again, it's not the greatest song. Certainly at this time, you know, we had already heard that Babyface sound was. I just think that in terms of in Michael's career, I really like the fact that this was a ballad that, you know, where Michael was just being pure. You heard his voice and it was sincere. I agree, Sean. It's it's nothing special, but I appreciate it. I kind of dig it. Yeah, I mean, it's not spectacular and it's not awful. I kind of feel bad because I'm sure I remember at some point reading that it's supposedly Michael is singing it to his kids. So it makes you feel bad about ragging on it. But at the same time, it's like, well, it doesn't sound like he's particularly emotionally invested in it, which is kind of the weak point about it. It's kind of like a singing it while he's filing his nails and wondering if he's left the oven on type vocal. You know, it's like he's just sort of showed up, gone la 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 la, then gone home again and you know, or whatever. Is there's nothing about it that feels particularly invested and that's kind of where it falls down for me. I agree. I think some of the authentic Michael Jackson song just has a such a deep spirit and emotion. Like I hear it in Speechless. I hear it in The Lost Children. I do not hear it. It's almost as if he presents it as if you should hear it. Like I think the ending credits of Michael's home movies is set to this footage of his children and you are my life. So I think that's where some of that narrative comes from, that it was that this song somehow is special to Michael. But I don't hear that it's special to Michael in his vocal. Not at all. The next song coming up is Privacy, another one that I feel like is similar to songs Michael had done before. So I think you could compare this song probably to Tabloid Junkie from History. It's dealing with a lot of those same kind of themes of media pressure on him and how he handled that or didn't handle it. Uh, However, this one's got more of kind of like a boring sort of slow plodding beat. It's just a little bit more forced. It's not as creative as Tabloid Junkie. It's odd, I feel like, that he wanted to explore that territory again but in the form of a song that just doesn't live up to how great. It feels like Michael, when conceiving Invincible, thought, well, this is a Michael Jackson album. I've got to make it a Michael Jackson album. What belongs on a Michael Jackson album? Oh, I know, a song about how bad the media is. Let me do one. And it just didn't come out as well. It's kind of like when he was putting together Dangerous. I've copped flack for this before, and I know Keep the Faith is a huge fan favorite, but it kind of feels like he was maybe trying to recreate Man in the Mirror, but on the Dangerous album. And with this one, I just feel like he'd gone down that path before. It was territory he'd explored. And again, it kind of fills a space on the album that didn't need to be filled. Jamie, you're going to catch flack from me because I absolutely love Keep the Face. So we'll talk about that later. I agree. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I agree. If uh, 2000 Watts is the lowest point on this album, I think uh, privacy is right. Uh, right there with it. Michael Jackson's relationship with Princess Diana, if I may say, this might be blasphemy, but I feel like Michael played it up more than maybe it really was. And I think privacy is sort of an example of that character trait. You could argue that Princess Diana was probably one of the biggest celebrities of that time, especially in the wake of her passing. And Michael definitely rode on that frenzy a little bit. It's a little cheap. I think, Jamin, you kind of 
hit the nail on the head when you said that it seemed like the thought process was this is a Michael Jackson album, what belongs on a Michael Jackson album. And I kind of feel like that was something that followed Michael through his career after Thriller. And it was almost like he was constantly, he was like an alchemist who was trying to hone the formula for what is going to give me the biggest selling album in the world this year when I released this album. And you did fall into this formula of, I need my anti-media song. I need my save the world song. I need my rock song, etc. The problem with privacy, firstly, he's already covered some of the same territory in Unbreakable, better than in privacy, albeit still not brilliantly. But if you've already released going all the way back to things like Want to Be Starting Something, and even earlier on some of the Jackson's albums, and in the last few years, you've had Scream and Is It Scary and Tabloid Junkie and Too Bad and Money and so on. What is the need for privacy? Because it's just the same thing, but much, much, much worse. The intro, again, I think that's a recurring problem with Invincible, which is corny intros and outros to songs also. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of dull, you know, as you said, like a plodding song, maybe with a different arrangement, but even the vocal's not good. There's just so many problems with it. I mean, you know, we can all totally understand the sentiment. It's just kind of, we've all been understanding the sentiment for the last 20 years, so you kind of can give it a rest now. Yeah, I agree. This one needed to stay on the cutting room floor. A couple of interesting little factoids about privacy. We were talking earlier about that unreleased song, Can't Get Your Weight Off Me, which Charlie, you and I have had the pleasure of hearing. And James, you were there on that call with Michael Prince as well. And not sure I'd call it a pleasure. I, just, okay. just to say, I like it. You know, I like it. Um, you know, if you've heard Invincible, you've heard Get Your Weight Off of Me. It's basically the same well, song. Well, I actually feel like it's a combination between Invincible and Privacy. It sort of feels like a song that, an early song that both of these songs grew out of. I agree completely. You can totally hear both songs in it. Yeah, Can't Get Your Weight Off of Me was a platform for a couple different hooks. And instead of giving those hooks to just one song, they split them up into two songs. Another interesting fact, if any of you are familiar with the artist Beck, his dad, David Campbell, does the string arrangement on this song. Wow. Um, Random. So, uh, I, <laughs> and it's all the better for it. Um, yeah, so it's actually one of the good things about it. He was the one clicking the camera that was uh, <laughs> right. made up the whole groove. I've been silent on this Um so I, I'm I'm going to make quite the assertion here. So turn down your volume, put the kids to bed. This is the worst song Michael Jackson ever put out. There is no redeeming qualities in this song for me. To add even more to the ridiculous nature of the song, he yells out Slash. Slash isn't on the song. It's Michael Thompson. <laughs> this is, I yeah, I, that's all for me. <laughs> sloppy there's so much sloppiness in this era you know michael slipping on stage at the vmas michael it's just fly undone even that kind of sloppiness and then also this kind of sloppiness like yeah clearly the king of pop is in decline yeah and there's artifacts everywhere when you look for them yeah Yeah. someone needed to have pulled him aside and say hey mike 
this is not a good track. Clearly, no one was courageous enough to do that. Or did he give Sony a bunch of crap on purpose because he was cheesed off with Sony? I don't know how much merit there is to that theory, but certainly that is what he was talking about at the Killer Thriller Party by a year later. It was very much, I owe them some songs. I'm just going to give them any old toffee and then I'll be off. So I, I do wonder if there was an element of Michael trying to hive off the better material for a product where he thought he would have more support. I think the other thing that fuels that rumor, Charlie, is the fact that there are actually completed songs that are better than the ones on Invincible that were done during the recording sessions, like Escape, We've Had Enough, I'd even put She Was Loving Me in that camp, A Place With No Name, and none of those are on Invincible, and they absolutely should have been. No, I definitely think most of those songs should not have been on Invincible. I I agree. (laughs) There's a lot of songs on Invincible that should not have been on it, and those ones shouldn't have been on it either. Okay, so Don't Walk Away. Another one that unfortunately I want to be positive about, but I can't. It's kind of like You Are My Life. Like, Sean, you've been saying I can group it in with that. It's just... I just did such a chore to listen to. It's an effort to listen to. I find it to be incredibly depressing in an actually bad way, not a Radiohead way, but a bad way. It's just depressing and horrible and puts me in a really bad mood and there's nothing redeeming about it to me. (laughs) I don't, I I just think it fills up space on this album and I wish it wasn't there. So, so I'm going to take a lot of heat for this, whether it's from you guys or for from fans who are not a fan of this song. But this is my third perfect song on this album. And I've been referencing Forever Michael album. And I, I, I got to tell you, with those three songs, they put me they put me in the mind of that album. And, you know, and, and that's not Michael's most popular solo Motown album. But I think that was a solid album. And I think. I, what I love about this song is that I do feel the emotion. This is a song that when I listen to it, it actually can bring me to tears because I can, I, Michael is bringing all of the emotion, just pure. And I've, I've used that term a couple of times when talking about these songs, but I guess that's what I look for and I crave when I listen to Mike, when I, want, when I listen to Michael Jackson and when I want to hear that pure, his pure voice coming through. That's what I hear with Don't Walk Away. When I said at the beginning, there are three perfect songs on this album. This is my third one. And I absolutely love this song. And I've plugged Forever Michael a few times on this show. I just challenge everyone to go back and listen to that album and listen to these three songs. It really does bridge that gap in his career. I kind of agree with you, Sean. I, I like this song. I wouldn't say it's perfect, nor is it in my top three, but... I've always liked this song for some reason. I The vocal performance is one of the most enjoyable on the album for me. I agree. My comment would be, you know, good job, Michael. You did it. Sounds sounds good. There's not much to talk about, but it's, it's fine. Like, good job. That'll do, Michael. That'll do. Mm. <laughs> well, I'm with Jamin. This is a complete dirge. It is sub- Boy's own B side, oh, and Charlie, you're killing me. It, the vocal <laughs> is awful. Oh. I mean, it's rubbish. It's it just has no redeeming features at all. <laughs> Should not be on the album. I have no idea why he even bothered to record it. Just garbage. Charlie, Charlie, 
you and I are going to get together one day and we're going to sit down and listen to Forever Michael. And then we're going to sit down and listen to these songs. <laughs> I, 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 There's just not a flattering comparison. The vocal, the, oh, the vocal is just, no, I just don't know. What was he doing? What, who, who even presented that to Michael Jackson? It's crazy. The whole thing's insane. You know, this is something that it's like a, an Enrique Iglesias album track from one of his albums that he released in the last five years that nobody bought. You know, it's just, oh, what a waste of oxygen to record it. But when we talk about Michael, a lot of, we've, we talked even on this show about how sometimes it's overproduced. It's just too much going on. This is where there's not a whole heck of a lot going on. Yeah, it's not the most exciting song, it's Michael just singing. Yeah, but is it too much to ask for him to sing a good song? Is it? <laughs> is it? Will we so under supplied with material by Michael that it's like, oh well, Michael's singing, so yay. You know, I mean, that's he's a singer. He's supposed to be singing, but you know, it shouldn't be a high bar to say Michael Jackson, King of Pop, should be a singing and be singing something worth singing. Well, I think that's a, all a fair point, Charlie. And I think the truth is, is, first of all, the best songwriter for Michael Jackson is Michael Jackson. And Correct. Correct. Michael Jackson, the songwriter, was just not that prolific in the post-history era. Invincible is the outcome of that. I would argue there's only two real authentic history caliber, if that's even a bar that you can use as a point of measurement. But history caliber tracks, and those are the two I've already referenced, Lost Children and Speechless. And songs like this that are supposed to kind of fit some of those themes a little bit, when they're not written by Michael, they just, they do fall flat. You know, still he's trying and, you know, good job. But they're not his. They just aren't. And it's just too obvious. But if you think in terms of where his life was and where his career was, this is him saying, you know, there's nothing left to do but walk away. And so, especially as he's battling with Sony, you know, it's almost like he, he he's resigned himself to where he's at in his life. Do you really think he's career. that deep with it? Like, I think he just came into work and sang it. I don't think he's that deep with it in terms of, okay, I'm, I'm going to sing it that way. But I think his vocal performance conveys that. And so that's that's what I hear. And that's why this song, too, when I, there are times when it brings me to tears because I can hear the passion in this song and I can hear what he's saying and I know what's going on in his life. And it just it just comes through for me. I may be reaching a lot on this one. This is how that song moves me. I'm with James in the sense that what you're hearing on Invincible is Michael Jackson recording an album because he signed a contract that says he has to record an album as opposed to recording an album because he wants to record an album. And that is the difference between the Michael Jackson of Invincible and the pre-Invincible Michael Jackson is this is a guy and he has problems, you know, and he is under the influence of powerful medications that he's suffering at the time. But this is a guy that basically is almost never showing up to the studio. You know, there's all these stories from behind the scenes that there was a lot of times he just didn't show up. He, they're trying to get this album recorded and it's like they're trying to record a Michael Jackson album without Michael. And I think you're right, James, that this is basically Michael shows up and says, right, I'm here. What do you want me to do? <laughs> Let's get it over with, you know, and then goes home to his kids or whatever it is that he wants to do. I think that's a feature of Michael's career 
from that point onwards. And it sort of all starts with the Avram concerts where he signs the deal and then doesn't show up. And then he signs for the Madison Square Gardens concerts and then doesn't want to show up and takes something to try and get out of the shows. And Sonia having to cajole and bully and entice him into finishing and turning in Invincible because he doesn't really want to do it. Then he goes to Bahrain in 2003. He announces all these projects, which are never going to happen. And it's Michael kind of going through the motions of being Michael Jackson, but not really wanting to be Michael Jackson anymore. And I think that Invincible kind of epitomizes that. It is kind of the epitome of phoning it in. Some of the vocals even do sound like they've been literally phoned in. <laughs> you know, it's, again, it's not an attack on Michael. It's like, it's a, he, he was in a bad situation. You know, he's signed a deal with this label that's trying to nick his catalog and he doesn't really want to do it anymore. But yeah, I'm, I think that's what you're hearing. You're hearing a Michael Jackson that's like, right, I'm here. What do, what do you want from me? That's exactly what I mean by good job. And like, good job. And you know, like this is what we need. And by the way, Sean, to use your Forever Michael comparison, not too unlike the way he worked in the Forever Michael era. That's how it was in the Motown days. Yes. And, um, you know, invincible is that. I, I don't think Michael Jackson was ready, maybe ever. Deep down, I think he was saying goodbye with history in a lot of ways. Goodbye to, he still wanted to be a entity and a brand and a force in the entertainment business, obviously he wanted Marvel. He wanted to buy, like he wanted entertainment things, but I think he was done recording the way, like, cause he didn't like, he really didn't record, you know, a proper Michael Jackson project really ever again. Uh, in all honesty, uh, he never really tried that hard again after history. That was his last real attempt. But I think that resignation came through in this song. I really do. I just think it, it came through. And whether he was trying to or not, it just came through. And it, that's, that's how I hear it. Yeah. Cry. Michael had done a number of these songs throughout his career. He had done Man in the Mirror. He had done Keep the Faith. Again, this seems like Michael deciding, okay, I need, I need to change the world song on the album. He decided to use an R. Kelly track called Cry. I actually don't think this song is as bad as some people make out. I don't think it's as bad as some of the other tracks on this album. I actually kind of like it, which is difficult because of everything we know about R. Kelly now. It is a song that I'll sometimes put on mainly because of the instrumentation more so than the vocals or the lyrics. I actually really like what's going on there with the percussion. I don't know if Brad Buxer got involved in that as well, but it certainly sounds like something he did, like with Stranger in Moscow. There's like beatboxing and breaths and different things going on around that beat. I think it sounds uh, really, really nice. Uh, it's not a brilliant song. Some of the lyrics don't make complete sense vocally i don't think it's michael's best performance ever but it's a nice song and and for me one of the highlights on on the album you're definitely right about the instrumentation so brad and michael did the essentially the same thing with stranger in moscow they sampled some of his beatboxing and brad also did the synth arrangements so not that it's much of a curiosity for me but be somewhat interesting to hear because when r kelly gives songs away they're usually quite complete in their demos so i do kind of wonder what the original sounds like with that said it bewilders me how this was released as a single that mm -hmm. that just doesn't make sense 
Agreed. Yeah, it, it was literally rushed out in the wake of 9-11, rushed to radio. I don't exactly remember the facts around it, but I, within like a few weeks, like a week or something, even before the album came out, we were listening to Cry. Mm, right. 9-11 is the only depth it has. Otherwise, it's the poor man's man in the mirror. Like very poor man's, like the broke man's man in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is kind of a, a nothingy song that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense and doesn't really go anywhere. I'm intrigued by the video because the story that the fans had known for years and years was that as part of the dispute with Sony, Michael had refused to appear in the video for Cry because they were still refusing to put out Unbreakable as a single and fund that video. But a while back, Karen Fay posted something on Twitter suggesting that Michael had been about to record a contribution to the cry video but something had happened and he had had to flee the region or something i can't i, I wish i'd gone back and checked maybe you heard i just can't song. remember what the story was <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you know what what would his contribution have been i just you know, dread to think well I don't know why it would have been so hard for him to be like the last person standing in that giant line of people singing. Like <laughs> he, could, <laughs> he could have done it. <laughs> Cry was definitely the 9-11 song, obviously not written for that purpose, but presented with that purpose. But Michael had his own 9-11 song, What More Can I Give? So, yeah. say, similar case, not written for 9-11, but written many years prior, actually. So I wonder if that has something to do with the dispute where Sony was like, well, how about we promote the song that's on the album? in the wake of 9-11, and Michael was probably like, well, let's do this. We are the world cover. What more can I give? You know, I know I've come across as like massively negative as usual, but what more can I give? It's so fantastic. It's just so fantastic, and it's such a disgrace that Sony squashed that and that they didn't let him do it. I mean, it's so evil, really. It's evil, you know, because this is a major global corporation, basically shitting on an attempt to put out a fantastic song to raise money for the victims of 9-11. It's unfathomable that they didn't get more crap for what they did in that instance. And it was so petty and pathetic. It was such a great song. And if that is what's happened, that Sony has squashed What More Can I Give and decided to put out Cry, I mean, that's even more demented it's just insanity. So I've never thought of it in that way before. I've never thought of it in a 9-11 context before, the decision to put that single out. But it's just bananas if that's what actually happened. 100%. In that context, that's why I mentioned it earlier. Like for me, I can't separate 9-11 and the Invincible era. Like they are one and the same. And the quote unquote, also in hindsight, death to America that was happening. Also in hindsight, it was death to the King of Pop. Like that's how I view it in my messed up head. They both started these massive declines. America's perhaps a little slower than Michael Jackson's, <laughs> but that era was really, really bad for two of my heroes, America and Michael Jackson, really, really bad. But yeah, but that's what was going on with Cry, for sure. It was rushed to radio and it had a physical release too. The physical release came late, a little later, like after yeah. the album. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I have it somewhere. Yeah. I, I remember going out and buying it and I'm pretty sure that 
you could put the CD in your computer and it played the music video or something. It was like, oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> and doesn't it have Shout on the single as well? Shout and Streetwalker. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is the weirdest mix. What so- more can I give would have been much, a much better response. It has such mass appeal. Like it's so suburban, you know, middle America. Definitely we are the world throwback vibes. And you see a lot of that with all Invincible. Like Michael really didn't have a lot of new ideas. And what more can I give is a perfect example of that. Like, oh, it's, you know, oh, we need a charity single. Hey, I have a formula for that. Let me pull that out of the books. Yeah. Think what it would have done to rehabilitate his image though. At a time when he was so unmarketable, think what a hero he would have emerged if they had allowed what more can I give to come out with him at the helm, him as the writer of the song, the person that marshaled everybody together to get it recorded, the person that wanted it out to raise the money for the victims. I mean, it would have just completely reversed public sentiment towards Michael Jackson at that point. And you can't help but wonder if, as Corey Rooney has suggested in the past, there was some financial motive for Sony to try to sabotage or damage Michael Jackson's profitability, then maybe they really, maybe they basically destroyed an attempt to help 9-11 victims because they were trying to get hold of the music catalog, which is even worse. I mean, squashing it under any circumstance is really terrible, but if that's what was going on, it's just pure evil. Uh, Do you think that the public, just like myself, was just tired of Michael Jackson anthem songs because I, I just this is one of my least favorite songs because it's just that it's an anthem and I had grown tired of anthems from Michael way way back after uh, We Are the World. I think you know Heal the World didn't do anything for me, and so I just think that by this time we didn't need any more anthem songs from Michael. I think people want to see Michael Jackson's face. And you can never see his face. You can't see his face in the cry video. Even when he performs What More Can I Give live TV on stage, you can't see his freaking face. Like, they don't show his face. Like, Michael Jackson literally couldn't show up to promote his work. All of it was just a perfect storm of bad conditions. 9-11, a legitimate attempt by Tommy Mottola, who, by the way, at this exact same era, exact same time, was also destroying Mariah Carey's career. So certainly, you know, he had the goons and the tools available to pull this sort of stuff off. So I'm sure some of those accusations are legitimate. Mm-hmm. What more can I give as a centerpiece? So I think a lot of it from what I recollect or what I've been told or the anecdotes I've heard that, you know, Michael, the, the final nail in the coffin was what more can I give? Cry plays a role in all that. So the lost children, this track is one that is not only uh, controversial amongst fans as to whether it is a decent song or not, but also amongst collaborators. So people who worked on the song wished that it was not Invincible. <laughs> I'm fairly certain Brad Bucks has been quite public about saying that, yes, he did the song with Michael. He followed Michael's wishes and created it with him, but that it's not one of his favorite songs at all. I understand the intention behind it is really sweet and meaningful and it's about children that are missing and that, of course, that is such a a devastating thing when it happens and it just, again, it just doesn't fit with the album. How can you go from Heartbreaker to The Lost Children? It (laughs) It doesn't feel like it belongs on that album. Of course it is honest. It's as honest as Speechless, even more so. It's probably one of the most honest songs that Michael wrote. And 
I'm definitely not saying that I wish Michael had never recorded it. Of course I do. I, I think it's great that Michael, as an artist, could be as honest as he could be. But just as to whether it fits with the other songs on the album, I don't think it does. There's some interesting things in it, you know, like that there's little Easter egg things in there that Michael dropped in. There's voices sampled from one of his favorite episodes of The Twilight Zone. I think it's called Kick the Can, in which there's people in an old folks home and they're, they're reminded of the joys of youth and, and how playing the game Kick the Can kept the, them young. And as soon as they stopped playing that, they grew up. And Michael's, you know, obviously putting that little nugget in there as a little message they got Paris in it. It's got Michael's kids in it. I think for the first time, Paris is at the end. I think she's the one saying all the lovely flowers. Uh, there's some sweet things about it, but it's not one of my favorite songs, and I certainly don't think it fits on the album. Well, I 100% disagree with you, Jamin. I do wish Michael never recorded it. <laughs> and that's all from me. <laughs> People feel real strongly about this song, right? They really do. This is one of the songs that people are like, I just can't stand it. Articulate it. What is it about the song that you, that you, that you can't stand or why do you wish he'd never done it? I think the vocal medley on the verses is actually quite nice and I wish that could have been adapted to another song. It's just, I don't, as, as you said about Speechless before, it's, it's very saccharine, uh, it's syrupy you know those kinds of words that one might use to describe something like that it's just it's too much that's my best assessment it's just too much well there's also the elephant in the room of course which is you know michael was the subject of tabloid infamy at the time because he had been accused of impropriety with kids and so for many people including me at the time as a fan, it was kind of awkward. It was an awkward situation for Michael to be releasing a song which is overtly all about children. You know, it was it kind of felt uncomfortable and as if he was inviting criticism unnecessarily. You know, it's like you could have avoided... Every tabloid reviewer a lot of broadsheet reviewers also actually all every reviewer was going to say oh michael jackson recording a song about children awkward you know so it was like why would you do that to yourself why would you leave yourself open to the parade of jokes which are going to be made about this it kind of felt like a massive and enormously avoidable own goal Absolutely. It's like the, so do you know where your children are was originally considered for the Michael album, the first posthumous album. And apparently the estate were going to rename it 12 o'clock, you know, so it didn't have that title and people wouldn't make that kind of connotation. But then you have the lost children, <laughs> which is a decision Michael made. I understand all that guys. Like I completely agree. And very few brands and forces can get away with that. It sounds like a lot to track, but with Michael, this is a man who began his journey on this world as a very devout Jehovah's Witness. And until the day he died, talked about being Christ-like. This is a man who, for you know, somebody who presumably practices or at least was raised with Christian values is literally in the most literal form, practicing what he was preached and what he preaches. And he's using his platform for such an incredible good. And it really is such a shame that that falsity 
could remove yourself from the authentic beauty. It sounds like there's some agreement that, you know, there is a compositional greatness here. Like it's the melodies are fantastic. And uh, even the production is marvelous. And I could see why there's a little bit of cringe around the topic. But this is coming from, in my opinion, an innocent man who is producing an expression of himself, his album. And by the way, this album barely has any of him at all. In my opinion, only has two pieces of him, as I've already discussed, Speechless and The Lost Children. This is Michael Jackson. If he's a weirdo to you, if it's cringe to you, that's a sad thing. This is him. These are his values. This is what he sings about. This is what he writes about. He didn't write those other songs. This is the song he wrote. This is him. And I think it's absolutely stunning. I'll take Speechless. I could uh, could do without The Lost Children. Again, I had grown tired of the anthems. Uh, and I and I certainly get that that was his, that's how he wanted to present himself. That's what he cared about. That's what he loved. I just wish he didn't love this song as much because I did not need this one on the album. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I, I get it. Like it's, I've, I'm a little cringe with it too. Like it's certainly like as, you know, uh, you know, like I was 17, I think, or 16. I think I was 16 when the album came out. Like certainly I did not, you know, I did not present this one to the boys. Like <laughs> definitely not. That's not the cool factor I was going for. Like, so I completely get it. But I also, comp- I see the purity. I see the beauty. I see the artist. I really do. I see the man. And I love him too. Like, I don't just love the King of Pop. Like, I love Michael J. I love, this is so authentic. I love this man. The guy who wrote this. You love this one the way I love Don't Walk Away. I get it. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's okay for us as fans to acknowledge, though, that Michael did make some cringy-ass decisions in his life. Like, this, this was not a normal guy. This is a guy that would go to hotel rooms and surround himself with mannequins and talk to the mannequins. Like, He's on record saying that, and there's video footage of him doing that. This was a man who had such a unique experience on this planet that he was a very different person. So he did make some odd decisions and and cringy decisions at times. And you know, this this song to me is is one of those. But that's but I also understand the complete and utter artistic honesty within it as well. So. Yeah, I get it. It's on the album and it's it's there. So we have to de- <laughs> we have to deal with it whether we like it or not. It is there. <laughs> I wonder how the Sony execs went with this one. Like when Michael <laughs> said, "I want the lost children on this thing." I would love to have been a fly on the wall in that conversation. <laughs> well, depending on what you think their position was and what you think their intention was for Michael's future, they were probably rubbing their hands together and going, what a gift to us if we want Michael to look bad in the public <laughs> sphere. Yeah. You know, they probably said, Michael, do us another five of those. Can you call the album Why I Love Children by Michael <laughs> Jackson? You know, it's kind of like the Ed Bradley interview in a song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, Whatever Happens. Now, this is a song that's taken an interesting journey through my appreciation of Michael Jackson because I started out in 2001 loving this song. This was one of my favorite songs on the album. I remember playing it all the time when I was 16 or 17 or whenever I first got my hands on it. It was something that has a real dark sort of moody Latin vibe throughout it and a sound that Michael hadn't really experimented with before. And of course, he's collaborating with an absolute legend in Carlos Santana on the song. 
But over time, it's kind of taken the same journey in my mind that a lot of the other songs on Invincible has, and I've come to appreciate it less and less over time. I've got a little bit bored by it, and it's definitely not a song that really changed from its demo form to Michael actually recording it. Absolutely, Charlie, like you described before, Michael walking into the studio and just laying his voice down on a song that somebody else had prepared for him. This is that, like whatever happens is literally that kind of song. So yeah, it's it's cool that Michael experimented with this genre. I'm sure it made a lot of fans of Latin music that were also fans of Michael really happy. Not not one of his greatest, I don't think. What do you guys reckon? I I think it's decent enough. Uh, I'm always amused by the interaction at the end with the thank you, man, thank you, Carlos, given that they weren't even in the same studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, Santana refused to go to the studio and Teddy Riley had to go to his home and record his guitar parts. It's a nice song. Why did Santana refuse to go to the studio? Was he just being a diva or or what? Yeah, I think he was exiling himself for whatever reason. Uh, it's a decent song for it's definitely from Michael's Michael's catalog and I agree, Jamie, it's uh has that moody sound to it kinda you know, it it's it falls in line with what Michael has done. Uh, in the past, but it's good that he's he, you know he has that Latin song, so he's adding that to his catalog. It's a song I'll listen to, but you know it's it's certainly not one that uh, that jumps out at me. But I, I I do enjoy it. I think it's a great vibe, and I remember uh, on the forums and stuff, there was just this expectation, or maybe even just downright rumor, or just whatever. But everyone thought it would be a single, like we just expected it to be a single, because it just had such pop radio, like it would have just fit in. I think it would have been a hit single. I don't. I don't know how legitimate it ever was that it would have been released as a single because there's been no like stories or anything from anyone inside since saying it. But we always thought it would be. Yeah, just just like with Paul McCartney, "Girls Mind Say Say Say." I just thought that they would have released this and it would have been a hit, just because it's Michael Jackson and someone like Carlos Santana. Yeah, I think that there was potential with whatever happens as far as Michael the problems with Michael and his marketability at the time. It was a song that could have been released as a single with a video that he didn't need to be in. It's almost quite cinematic in its Mm -hmm. sound. That said, I mean, as you say, Jamin, it's very much kind of Michael phoning a vocal into somebody else's song. We know because the demo is publicly available that he didn't write a bean. He just somehow got his name on the song having written nothing at all, literally nothing. It's also a terrible vocal. Mm -hmm. It's a really bad vocal. As much as I don't like the song, I can see that within the context of a promotional campaign, had Sony or Michael wished to pursue one, there was potential life in the song as a single with a video that he didn't need to be anywhere near that could still have worked. That is potentially a, a missed opportunity. Yeah, I agree. And we've alluded to a few times in this discussion about how Michael's voice was perhaps not uh, up to par for some of these songs compared to his other albums in the past. Certainly, you've got some high points in the album where Michael is singing beautifully, like on Butterflies. But then there's songs like this where he sounds like a completely different person. He almost sounds like he's got a full-on flu or cold when he's singing this song. He's really blocked up. And that's another observation I remember making as a young listener when it first came out is that Michael just didn't quite sound like history Michael on some of these songs. 
almost feel bad for saying it, but I think it's perhaps the same reason we never got to see his face. You know what I mean? Like, I think something happened that, I, I don't know, that's sort of what I've, I've come to conclude. Like, Yeah, and yeah, you're 100% right, James. And, and all you have to do is go back and, you know, if you look at photos of Michael Jackson from the very late 90s compared to the 2000, especially side profile photos, you can see that he was continually having surgery on his nose. There's interviews where Michael said, you know, I only had two surgeries or whatever, and it's just clearly not true. Michael's the side profile shape of his nose changed dramatically between the years 1999 to late 2000. There's like an entire piece under his nose in the septum area that's just completely missing from the late 90s to the early 2000s. And what kind of physiological impact that ongoing surgery had on his face, I don't know, on his ability to breathe. He certainly alluded to the relationship between nasal surgery and being able to sing in his interview with Martin Bashir. So who knows whether the surgery had an impact on it, but I certainly think it's a possibility. I think the, some of the vocals we're hearing is an artifact of, of some of that. And if we want to talk truth here, like, you know, having a tube stuck down your throat to go to sleep or to wake up every morning probably isn't too kind on the vocal cards either. And we know that, you know, he was up to that sort of stuff in between history and this album. I think we see artifacts as some of that. And we could speculate all day long, but you know, none of us know for sure. But in general, you, I think we could all, with fairness, say that we're seeing decline in many areas of what makes the yeah. king of pop the king of pop. And vocals is one of them. And really how unfortunate that this man that, we, that I love, at least you know, I'm sure most of your listeners do too, had to go out and face the world like this. And you can see it in his yeah. face. You can see yeah. he hated life during that time. He just hated it. Last thing he wanted to do was have to be out there in his condition. For real. He actually says in the Shmuley Botech interviews um, that he hates the way his face is, which I forget when those interviews were done, but was it 2000, 2001? I think he says he feels that he looks like a lizard or something. Another thing which we've not really touched on is that Michael was showing up to the recording sessions when he did show up under the influence of not only drugs, but also alcohol. Those were stories that were coming out of the studio and have been confirmed posthumously by some people that were in the studio with him, that he was basically not quite compass mentis when he was showing up for work. Was he hung over? That kind of stuff. Who knows? That may have been having an impact on his vocals. The other thing is around 2001, he clearly had had some kind of bad or botched procedure which froze his top lip. And you can, in that era, hear that it affected his pronunciation of, of words, Definitely. particularly his, his R's. He couldn't pronounce his R's properly for quite a while. So that may also be impacting on the quality of the vocals. No doubt. And, and, you know, out of respect for the man, I think we're all saying this really out of an empathetic and sympathetic. Like, I mean, it's first of all, it's just staggering and shocking to think that even the king of pop, you know, is a mere peasant like you and I, and he still has to show up to work if they tell him you have to show up to work. Because I don't think he wanted to show up to work in this condition, but he still had to, and he still had to promote and and schlock around. And you know, I think it speaks a lot to the artistic creation that is the King of Pop. You know, that is one of Michael. Ja that's probably the preeminent Michael Jackson project, the Michael Jackson King of Pop persona. That manifestation certainly manifested itself, probably posthumously. 
I would say the same thing about Jay-Z and Beyonce today. Like, I don't think you're really as powerful as we all think you are. I think a lot of that is just image. You know, this was a man who the dying words he was given was, you, I believe, to this to be fact, I'm pretty sure, is Randy Phillips told him, you can't even wipe your butt unless I buy you toilet paper. He was perhaps in that same condition before Invincible. It's sad. I'm heartbroken for him. Now that I know that, you know, I didn't know that at the time. I believed the king of pop yeah. persona. I believed he was king. No one tells Michael Jackson what to do, but he's a working man like you and I. And he's got a boss who's a mean boss too, a devil, who's going to force him to work, force him out there and face the world like that. It's sad. Absolutely. Yeah. I And I just want to make clear again, you know, because I know that I come across as very negative, but I'm just trying to be honest. But none of this is me attacking Michael. You know, it's a very, very sad set of circumstances, which all began with factors beyond Michael's control. You know, this all began when Michael was a child. He was set on a path by his father, which had enormous ramifications for the entirety of his life. And it was not his wish. It was not his doing. But it is what it is. What happened, happened. You know, what happened to his face happened, etc. And, you know, you have to acknowledge it. It's not an attack on him. It's just that you can't have a, a truthful conversation about Invincible without addressing these issues. So I just want to make clear I'm not being, this is not an attack on Michael. This is just an, an, an assessment of this point in his life, which was very, very sad. Absolutely, Charlie. And in many ways, we are of the intellectual mindset. All of us probably listening to this podcast, I don't think it's, you know, we're all pretty deep fans here. And I think all of us are of the intellectual mindset that we can really admire his strength. You know, I know a lot of strong people in my personal life, but none of them are as strong as Michael Jackson. That's the honest guy. He's the strongest man I know. And I do feel I know him in some weird way. And uh, man, is that guy strong? He's, he, by the way, he still went out there facing everything we just talked about, botched everything and botched everything. He still went out there and gave what, you know, was his best at the time. And and he still pulled it off for the most part. I mean, 8 million, 10 million, whatever it is, copies ain't bad. Mm -hmm. Good job, Michael. And like we've said a million times, you can't look at the low points in Michael's career and let that impact the legacy of the high points that he reached. You know, we can be talking about Invincible not being a great album, but that doesn't mean that off the wall, thriller, bad, dangerous history aren't incredible perfect albums you know like it's it's just a journey he went on as an artist and every every artist has a bad album really so (laughs) and absolutely yeah. yeah and the other thing is that it kind of is offensive when fans say that album that michael recorded under duress and under the influence of drugs is just as amazing as michael at the peak of his abilities that's offensive you have to be honest and Saying that Invincible is not very good does not in any way diminish the things that Michael did, which were fantastic. Michael did a lot of things which were absolutely fantastic, and that's why he is regarded globally as the king of pop. But it is offensive, in my opinion, to say Michael on stage on night one of Madison Square Garden bent double with his hand covering his face and singing off-key is amazing. It's not amazing. And actually, I struggle to see how anyone can take any enjoyment from watching somebody do something that they don't want to be doing. I don't take enjoyment from watching Michael do something that he doesn't want to do. That's not enjoyable for me. So 
I think that some fans feel like they have to be positive about everything Michael did, maybe because of the onslaught of negative media attention that he attracted throughout his life and since his death. But you're not attacking Michael by telling the truth. You know, the fans have to be able to discern the difference between being honest and being nasty. And sometimes I think they confuse the two. It's part of his story. And I think that, uh, some, you know, certain fans just want to, like you said, they want to see that positive. I'm a realist when it comes to Michael's career. I don't have a problem saying that Invincible is a very uneven and it's definitely not one of his best. We have to talk about, you know, what damage, you know, his, you know, all the surgeries did to his voice, similar. You know, I always think of it in terms of uh, Teddy Pendergrass. Teddy tried to come back and sing after his accident. You know, his voice wasn't as strong. And so that's the same thing with Michael. You know, you could you could do this, you know, you can constantly get the plastic surgery on your nose or you can put the tube down your throat just to sleep. And that's going to have an effect. And I think we have to be honest about that. We have to talk about it as a part of his journey, as a part of his story. Absolutely. That was a real uh, rabbit hole chat there about whatever happens. Let's uh, <laughs> let's finish off our uh, discussion about the tracks on Invincible with a chat about Threatened. Now, thank God that this album and this conversation is hopefully going to finish on a high point here because I think we could agree that Threatened is, is a good song. Now, continuing the theme of horror-style songs that Michael had done with Thriller and Ghosts and Is It Scary and even started way back with Off the Wall and This Place Hotel, Michael, on the final track of his final studio album, decides to dip into those horror themes again with Threatened. And it's great. It is really, really great. It's got the same formula in a way as some of those songs that start off the album. It's Rodney Jerkins. It's Dark Child. It's it's a lot of production. There's a lot of sounds going on. It's I wouldn't call it messy, but it's definitely very busy. It kind of works though because the theme of the song is so cinematic and grandiose and kind of aware of itself and kind of like kind of like thriller in a way. I just think it's fantastic. I love it. It's the song that probably apart from You Rock My World, I go back to from this album the most when I want to listen to it. Wonderful. I even really like the Rod Serling sort of rap thing in there. And I, <laughs> I know it's kind of corny, but I think they did such a great job with it. And wonderful song. One of the best songs on the album. I, I agree. And I think it's uh, with Unbreakable and Threatened. Those are great bookends for this album again an uneven album but i think uh threaten is a is a great song and again you, you you hit it right on the head this is a you can draw the line back to thriller heartbreak hotel all those songs that have that tension that horror theme to it and so i love it i love the rod serling part and so i think this is a great and it just falls in line with how michael ended his albums in general yeah it's a great song i love it always have i would say you have my world is a separate thing but of the other dark child tracks Privacy, Unbreakable, Heartbreaker, Invincible. This one has aged the best by far of those like hard hitting, really futuristic, whatever you want to call that sounding. This one hits the best still. Well, so threatened to me, I see why it's likable. It has all of the elements of a good song. For whatever reason, it just doesn't speak to me. If I ever do listen to Threaten, I listen to Remix by Nick's version of it that he put 
out probably 10 years ago. Actually, I think he put mm. it out for the 10th anniversary. He's got a couple of versions of it. Yeah, okay. Well, one of them I listened to. It feels like liking Threatened is on my to-do list or something. It's just something I haven't gotten around to. I love Threatened. That sounds like that sounded like Michael on the Private Home movies, but I do. <laughs> I really, I genuinely, I genuinely do love Threatened. I think it's brilliant. You're right. Is production-wise, it's not a million miles away from the first three tracks. But I think what sets it apart is that the first three tracks are in this kind of limbo land where they're not quite upbeat dance tracks. And they're difficult to get into. So Unbreakable is a bit plodding, you know, boom, boom, boom. It's a bit kind of like, uh, you know, plodding, plodding. Whereas Threatened is a proper driving beat. And it's just so easy to get into it. I think it's really clever the way the composition is made up of all of the relevant samples really really smart reminds me in that sense of um uh is it she drives me wild which is all made of the car samples yeah very similar in concept so you take all of these sound effects and samples which are in some way related to the supernatural or or you know that kind of world and build a composition out of them i think that's so clever and it's almost kind of incidental to me that it's a Michael Jackson song because the composition itself is so great and so driving. I actually wish this song was longer. So whereas the first three songs just seem to drag on forever, this one ends way too quickly. It reminds me of Blood on the Dance Floor. Blood on the Dance Floor is another one where I could easily take another three minutes of Blood on the Dance Floor. It's just so good. And I could easily take another three minutes of Threatened on the end. It feels like you spend the whole album waiting for a fantastic song and then you get one and then it's over as soon as it's begun. I just think it's great. I agree. You know what? It kind of reminds me. It's funny you mentioned She Drives Me Wild because out of all the songs on Invincible, Threatened kind of reminds me more of like a New Jack dangerous era song than anything else. It's got that Michael Jackson feel from the early 90s. And I just love it. <laughs> I know it's cheesy, but the whole Rod Selling thing, it just makes so much sense for Michael. Like even that line, uh, Never Neverland, that's the place or, or whatever it is. That's just bananas that they were able to find those <laughs> clips and piece it together to make sense for him. So good. Right. Well, that brings us to the end of Invincible and all the tracks on that album, all 16 tracks. Thank you very much, guys. I know that some of those are a bit of a a mission to talk about and (laughs) some aren't. Something else we should touch on, I think, guys, is the album cover and the booklet for Invincible. The cover art direction, of course, was done by Nancy Donald, David Coleman, and Adam Owett cover design by Stephen Hankinson and photography by Albert Watson. I'd love to know what you guys think of the album covers as it is one that stands as quite a contrast, I think, to Michael's other album covers. Yeah, it does. I would say so for sure. I remember the rumors surrounding the album art and I remember specifically Planet Jackson posted a little teaser story I tried to find it, but I can't find it in any archives or anything. But they talked about the album cover a few months before it came out. And they talked about how, I think at the time the song was called Rock My World, not even You Rock My World. And they talked about how the first single would be Rock My World. And it would be a close-up of Michael's eye, 
which is kind of cool. So there was some early hype around the album cover. It also seems that perhaps this wasn't the only concept Michael Jackson was working on for the Invincible art cover. I think a few years after Michael died, a photographer by the name of Arno Bonnie revealed a photo shoot from 1999 that, uh, if I recall correctly, I think Karen Fay talked a little bit about on Twitter. It seems that perhaps these may have been concepts artwork for Invincible. And they're really cool. They're, it's like two different scenes. One has Michael in this sort of like modern Egyptian-y look. It's really, really cool. And another concept has Michael wearing a sparkly jacket. He's sort of he got like a glittery look and there's some sort of blue glitter paint on his eye. Very, very cool concepts. And I'm wondering if they really were for Invincible. And if they were, I'm wondering why they chose not to use them. Yeah, so I I am a very big fan of the uh, Barney photo shoot, and I I really do think that that should have been used as the cover art, particularly the um the one you spoke of with the glittery eye. I think that's interesting, and it would have been nice to see that return to Michael on the cover rather than you know Dangerous. Of course, had this rather elaborate um, montage of things with just his eyes history had the statue and blood on the dance floor was uh, some kind of painting so to have him back on the album cover would have been good again probably not so much the the egyptian one i think his features uh well all of those pictures are photoshopped to death anyway but particularly that egyptian one is a little bit too feminine at least for my liking and if anyone has an issue with that statement you can at me at c e thompson that's thompson with an h on twitter uh (laughs) but in terms of the actual album cover it's i think it is appropriate given what the album is which is this kind of the word cold comes to mind the the album cover is this half real but half digital or pixelated really composition a real close up of, of his face it doesn't really look like him uh, particularly during this era i think it does work and and that in combination with the font that was used the very pixelated font and that stuff does work for me in terms of what the album actually is and then you have weird things throughout the booklet like that photo shoot where, I, 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 if I recall correctly, um, on the full version of it, isn't he on like a stripper pole or something? Or <laughs> Correct. He's in yeah. like this house of mirrors situation, strangely. And then you have that very weird Yuri Geller illustration in there containing these eyes and fishes and pointy objects and... Those are quite strange. Perhaps it would have been the bounty shoot definitely would have been better, but even just the booklet itself, maybe they should have capitalized a bit more on the photo shoot that's actually featured in there and has huge amount of outtakes as as has been leaked since. Well, if you look at the three albums prior to Invincible, in my opinion, the cover art, they walk the line of almost high art. You know, there's a lot of symbolism in the Dangerous cover deep messages. It's very open to interpretation, I guess. And people have spent many years on YouTube and on forums trying to interpret the Dangerous cover. You look at the History album cover, it also has some symbolism, 777. And it seems as though Michael Jackson was encoding some symbolic mystery into his album art. Even Blood on the Dance Force sort of reflects that. 
And I would say the Bonnie shoot, very similar along the same vein, sort of has a high art element. I think the final cover we got was very safe. I don't think it really says much of anything. I don't think there's any deeper messages in there. I think it's, you know, literally just an image that they picked. It's a little bizarre. It is neat how they used in the actual CD artwork. It was silver ink, which is kind of cool. It, it's reflective. Do you think that that's what they were going for, just for it to look cool and that that's kind of it? Does it, does it look cool, I guess, is the deeper question there. In five colors, it looks cool, I would say. <laughs> yeah. um, that's really cool. I think it's a lot like the rest of what we hear on Invincible. Like it, it really is much more of a product than it is, you know, some deeper high art statement from Michael. The cover is appropriate. I do have a cool little artifact. If you don't mind, I'm going to, I'm not trying to brag about my collection or anything, but I'm going to, I'll post this photo on Twitter and I'm saying it to you guys now. I want to say in 2011, maybe Dr. Arnold Klein had a little auction selling off a lot of his memorabilia. And I was fortunate enough that I was able to win uh, a piece of art from Arnold Klein's collection. And wow. uh, it's Invincible Almart Proof, signed to Michael. And he writes on it, love to Arnold Klein, love Michael Jackson. And from everything we talked about earlier in this episode, I find that this print really is like, it kind of almost, it's, this is like the almost the high art version of Invincible because it kind of tells you exactly what happened. This guy was hanging out with Dr. Arnold Klein. It's, you know what I'm saying? Like this is an artifact representing where Michael was, his state of mind, his friends, his circle at that time. And I think Invincible as a product really reflects a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Mm. Look, fellas, I actually think the album cover is genuinely cool. I really like it. It is one of the few things about Invincible that I think really did hit the nail on the head. I just love it. I, I don't know what it is about it. I think it's sort of like this, it's so sparse and so stark and so simplistic. And it's a real contrast, I think, to Michael's other 90s album covers, like we were saying, with all of the complex symbolism and all of that stuff is really, really cool. But I thought it was just such a cool change of direction where it's like, here's just simply me, here is my face, and um, this is the album cover. And I like the idea of them mixing sort of like those organic elements of the cover, just that pure photography of him with that digital pixelated sort of art overlaying the eye. Even in the font, you can see like half of the text. I think from memory of the words Michael Jackson, the word Michael is pixelated, but Jackson is a traditional typeface. And I think that echoes the track list of the album where a lot of it is that futuristic sounding stuff, but then really organic stuff. But I think we need to talk a bit more about the cover because the photo that we see on the cover is not really the photo as it was originally taken. So the Photographer who did a lot of work on the Invincible album cover, or in the booklet, I should say, his name's Albert Watson, and he did a very famous photograph in 1992 called The Golden Boy, which is, um, you know, a, a pretty famous image of, a, of an adolescent male covered in sort of gold paint that's really well known around the world. And Michael must have been a big fan of it because he went out and got the same photograph taken of himself by Albert Watson covered in gold paint. And I don't think we've ever seen that original photo. We've seen some we've seen a black and white version, a fuller version of that photo. I don't think we've ever seen the original golden one. We've seen fans try to mock it up and do like color gradient changes and things in Photoshop to make it look like it would have originally. 
But Sony, for whatever reason, decided after seeing that original photo to zoom right in on it, just right up to Michael's face, and then totally wash it out and just make it uh, grayscale. And then um, obviously make it all the different colors as well. So I'm sort of what's interesting to me. Oh, and by the way, Albert Watson, I think he also did all of those photos in the booklet. The 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 one <laughs> the one you were talking about, um, John, with the stripper pole, all the mirrored photos. So I guess like what's interesting to me is why would Sony have chosen not to go with the photo in its original state and like really zoom in on it and manipulate it in that way? Well, I guess. I mean, having seen the the photo, um, I don't think it's a very good cover. There's also with with what the cover became. There is also his left eye, or left from our perspective, has that mm. pixelation on it, which would later be used for the cry single and "You Rock My World." I wonder if that was kind of if that was intended to be a consistent symbol used throughout this era for the various products that would have eventuated. I think you're absolutely right. It's on the back cover as well, above the track list on the CD version. And if you guys remember, it was also featured very prominently on the <laughs> the Flash MichaelJackson.com website. Mm. <laughs> I'm pretty sure when you logged into that at the time, you heard the song Unbreakable because that's when it was still being considered this the lead single i think they they started out with that big pixelated eye and then it zoomed the butterfly single uses the same font typeface i think the cry single cover is close up of the face as well if i recall is that right i think you mentioned it john i think it's just the eye is it just the eye i mean rock my world is an eye as well yeah 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 so they did you know build a campaign i guess you could say around this imagery if i don't know how much you guys recall about some of the hype and rumors before the album came out but there was a lot of quotes. I think Ronnie Jerkins said that the album is, they're going for industrial R&B is what he called it. In some way, you can sort of argue that we're in the information age, it's, especially in that era. It's the era of Napster, downloads, internet, broadband, dial-up. I mean, it was computers were just a phenomenon at that time. So it was a new thing. And to have that sort of digitized look was kind of cool for the era and sort of represents the era. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly not his most iconic album cover, but when you walked into record stores in 2001 and saw the album in all of its different colors stacked up against other albums of the time around it, it certainly drew your eye. I I just really love how simple it is, and I think it stood the test of time myself. I'm not sure I agree, but I do think it did its job, and it whatever it is, but in the universe of Michael Jackson album covers, this probably ranks pretty low, I would say. Like probably at the bottom between <laughs> off the wall, thriller, bad, dangerous, history, blood on the dance floor. Invincible's kind of in last place. <laughs> I think your dog agrees. We have consensus. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with you, James. I don't think in the Invincible cover is unremarkable. It is what it is. It's it's hard to match the iconography of the prior what, four albums, that's next to an impossible task anyway. It wouldn't have mattered whether, as I said, whether they used the the Barney shoot or, or went with something else. That's a high expectation. I think it's also worth reading the album booklet itself because in the last couple of pages of it, in the CD version at least, Michael gets quite personal with his thank yous. 
kind of like the history album. There's a lot of notes in there to people that meant a lot to him. He does dedicate the album to a couple of people. He dedicates the album officially to his grandmother, Nicolette Sotil, and says, I love you, your grandson, Michael. But then also dedicates the album to uh, a boy who was tragically murdered, actually. It's quite a sad story, but Benjamin Hermanson, he was a young black boy, a Ghanaian Norwegian boy who was killed very sadly by a bunch of neo-Nazis called the Boot Boys, I think early in 2001, 26th of January 2001. And I think the story goes that he was actually close friends with Omar Batty, who was another friend of Michael Jackson. I think that's why the album was dedicated to him as well. So it's well worth reading the details of the album booklet to get even more depth to the album too. There's also, of course, the illustration of The Rose, which is done in a similar manner to the cover where it's half real, so to speak, and half pixelated. And I've always found this quite odd because below it it says, as another dedication, to Carol Bayer Sager, without you this album would not have been possible. We truly love you from the bottom of our hearts, Michael Jackson and Rodney Jerkins. She is only a writer on, I think, one song that made the album. Of course, she contributed to other unreleased songs, like notably We've Had Enough, but that's quite a dedication and quite a credit for someone who really doesn't have that much of a presence on the album or is noted as having much of a presence on the album. Her significance in the era was more bringing Michael and Rodney together. I think it was through oh, her okay. that the two met. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. But um, there we go. We now have an Invincible Roundtable in the bag. I thought what would be cool to finish off this episode is if we could reflect on and think about, imagine if we got given the keys to the car in 2001 and we got put in charge by Sony of finishing that final track list and we could put together a tight package that we knew would perform a little bit better than the one that came out, what would we put together? We've spent a little bit of time thinking about it and piecing together our own track lists. Who wants to go first? All right, I guess I will because I've done this exercise quite a few times. I would just read out the tracks in the order I'd put them in. I think so. And let's also preface this by saying that we're also drawing on unreleased songs with this. So not only the songs that exist currently in those 16 tracks, but songs Michael was working on before Invincible came out. Yeah, that's most of my track list. <laughs> okay, so my track list would be Escape, Another Day, She Was Loving Me, A Place With No Name, Blue Gangster, Break of Dawn, Heaven Can Wait, Butterflies, The Way You Love Me, You Rock My World, Hollywood Tonight, and We've Had Enough. Yeah. Give it a spin. <laughs> see, see how it goes. <laughs> I do wish Michael had got to finish Hollywood tonight. That was really heading towards something great. Mm. Well, I'm afraid mine would be more of an EP. <laughs> um, so, I honestly, I think all of the unreleased songs generally are not much better than um, the stuff that made it onto the album. So, this is my, in no particular order, You Rock My World Without the Intro, Escape, Threatened, Butterflies without the aggressive beat and a finished version of Hollywood tonight. That would be my EP version. I sincerely 
very sincerely don't think that there's anything else on the album or in the outtakes which merited release as a Michael Jackson song. If Speechless had been perfected, that might go on there. But in its current form, it's a no. I would go with Unbreakable, Heartbreaker, Invincible, She Was Loving Me, In the Back, You Rock My World, Butterflies, Another Day, Fall Again, A Place With No Name, Don't Walk Away, We've Had Enough, Whatever Happened, and Threatened. Nice. Did you say In the Back? Yes, In the Back. That was something Michael had wow, started. That was work. such an early demo, though. Who yes. knows where it would have gone? And I think it's just, it, it again, it's one of those, you know, I love the beat. I love how hard the beat is. And I just, I, mm-hmm. to me, that would have fit on that album perfectly. It's definitely mood-wise, I guess, a totally different direction that he'd gone in other music. And I'm going to do something just a little different. And as one of the B-sides, this has to be a B-side, not on the album, seeing voices. That needed to be a B-side. I actually love what Michael did with that one. That's a pretty incredible song, actually. When that leaked, was it two years ago, something like that? I was blown away. I was like, wow, he's never done anything like this before. Exactly. And so that needed, and I could actually even, I I could make an argument of putting that on the album, but I'll I'll take it off and put it as a B-side. James. So I'm ashamed to say I'm a little unprepared, so I didn't make this list. Although hearing these titles, I mean, there's some amazing songs, obviously, that were left off Invincible. I'll just say that I think no matter what, I think just the situation of the whole scene, I think it's it was it, it's doomed no matter what. So if we got the crummy songs, and I kind of think we did get the crummier songs, um, maybe that is a good thing. And for a long time, the fans, you know, there was this sort of mystical, mythical seven album that allegedly you know, Michael Jackson was about to drop any, it was like the QAnon of the invincible <laughs> yeah, days. Like right. any day that he's going to drop this, you know, we'd be saying it like for five years. And I don't think there was ever any legitimacy to it. I don't think he legitimately wanted invincible to sink. I think he very much so needed a success when he dropped invincible. All the headlines are about Michael's financial state. The stories about the $250 million loans were that actually all the media talked about in the actual, during the time that, Invincible was released. That was the topic, Michael's sort of financial situation. He needed a hit. And I think it adds some legitimacy to the idea that maybe, you know, the Invincible promotion was sort of a hit job, as some fans believe. I don't know, but it's doomed no matter what. Yeah. All right. So in putting mine together, I wanted to limit myself to 10 songs because I really feel like from Dangerous onwards, Michael's albums suffered from being too long. I think he had the formula right already. In the 80s, I think they dragged out a bit in the 90s. And so I'm going to bring my Invincible back to 10 tracks only. I want to keep it tight. And I think that would have been a much better album. I want to kick it off with Escape because I really think like Escape is, the way I think of Escape, it's really like a spiritual successor to the history era type tracks that he was doing with money and tabloid junkie and that kind of thing. I probably would have kept one of the first three songs on there. I probably would have kept Unbreakable. So Escape, Unbreakable, Straight Into You, Rock My World, Butterflies, Break of Dawn, Hollywood Tonight, She Was Loving Me, and then finishing it off with We've Had Enough, What More Can I Give, and Threatened. I don't know. I think the album would have done a lot better if it was a bit shorter and just handpicked great songs. Yeah. What about the song, though? There's one that I kind of like, Sean, you had with Seeing Voices. There's a song that I had. It's an unreleased song that I feel like... 
I don't know. Maybe if he'd finished it off, it could have been one of the great ones on the album. What do you guys think of the song on the Ultimate Collection, Fall Again? Beautiful. Trash. <laughs> I, I asked, that was yeah. one of my that was one that was on my my track list i i like fall again i love it yeah isn't it just a cover of someone else's song like the rest of the album yeah <laughs> yeah it's just kind of like a isn't it a sting song isn't the i think the riff is from a sting song or something it's just kind of like a blah nothingy i mean maybe if he'd worked on it for a long time and built built it up a lot it could have turned into something but the version that we've got is so blah it's just like what's the point i don't know about the sting song and i don't remember his name but another like up-and-coming r&b artist of the era did record it and it was on the jennifer lopez movie soundtrack made it made in manhattan that's right it's in the movie it's a it's a someone sings it in the movie i'm pretty sure robin thick wrote it for michael Mm. And yeah, then I think Robin Thicke, I don't mean to cut you off, Robin Thicke and Kenny G re-recorded it. Yeah. That was later, but even at the time it was actually released by another artist, like in 2002, like right after Invincible was released. Like Robin Thicke must have sold it off to someone else and uh, it was on a movie soundtrack. Yeah, you're, you're definitely right. So once the album came out, it was almost as if Michael himself had given up on it as well, not just Sony, because in any occasion that he was doing some kind of public engagement to promote the album, he didn't sing any songs from it, except on 30th anniversary concert where he did You Rock My World. But you've got a number of performances after 2001, for example, the two 2002 performances where he did Dangerous, so I think the American Bandstand 50th anniversary and the Bill Clinton fundraiser. I think he did Black or White and Heal the World there as well. But you're not seeing Michael perform any of the songs from the album. Yeah, well, there's two ways of looking at that. The, the, the one way of looking at it is he was in the middle of this dispute with Sony where he was accusing them of not properly promoting the album. And was he making a point of uh, not promoting the album? The other view is, um, you know, he kind of, you could tell that he was not really into performing anymore. Look what happened on the first night of Madison Square Garden. So was he basically just pulling old routines out because it was much easier to walk through the old stuff than to try and devise new choreography and come up with new performances for the new material. I mean, and he just wasn't doing it that well at all. No, no. I mean, if you look at the American yeah. bandstand performance of dangerous, he gets the choreography wrong. At one point they accidentally switch his microphone on, I think, and he sounds terrible. And then if you look at the choice of songs for the democratic party fundraiser, then you've got Dangerous, which is choreography heavy. And then you've just got Black or White, where traditionally he sort of legs it up and down the stage a bit and doesn't do a lot else. And Heal the World, where he basically stands still and lip syncs. So these are very easy performances to deliver with minimal preparation, minimal rehearsal. So who knows? Some of the fans like to think that it was uh, him taking a principled stand against Sony and refusing to promote the album to spite them because he felt that they weren't promoting the album. But it seems to be honest that it's more likely that he was just dusting off old routines and, and delivering these performances with minimum effort. Yeah. It just, and it speaks to where he was in his life at the time. 
Um, and, and also just it's symbolic of how uneven the album is, uh, how un- uninspired in many cases it, it, it sounds. And I think this is how he was at that point. He seemed uninspired. Uh, his life was very uneven. Uh, and so that's what came across in his performances. And you know, it kind of also just to me, it shows that he really didn't believe in the album the way that he would have believed in off the wall, the way he would have believed in Thriller. There was just so much uncertainty in his life, so much turmoil that it just came through in his performances. In these two cases, the lack of a true Michael Jackson performance. Yeah. And you sort of see that lack of self-confidence as well in the other appearances that he made, like even at the American Music Awards, uh, I think it was, I can't remember what award he was getting. It was some kind of like artist of the century or something. You've got the MTV Awards, which is just an absolute train wreck where they, yeah. remember when they tricked him mm-hmm. uh, into thinking that he yeah. was going to get the Artist of the Millennium Award, but it ended up just being some kind of birthday cake award or something, mm-hmm. which was just such a low point. That's That moment is really up there with the baby dangling incident for me in Michael Jackson's reputation reaching rock, absolute rock bottom. Well, if you remember when he came out on the stage, he walked into the wall. You know, he he came out, walked into the wall. and But the thing was, he was tricked. But because of what was going on in his, in his life at that time, he was very easy to trick. He, he basically was um, a sitting duck. And there was one website, and I wish that I had kept it. I wish I'd had the foresight to download it or screenshot it or something. But there was a music journalism website which did re- – it ran a story saying that music industry insiders – had confirmed to this website that it was done as a punishment. It was done on purpose as a punishment because Michael Jackson had criticized Sony over its handling of the Invincible release. It was the only website, and I don't even remember which one it was now, but it was the only media outlet to report that. What did get reported, was I remember when that happened, MTV actually released the story on its website saying Michael Jackson has won the Artist of the Millennium Award. And then they redacted it. They took it away and started saying that he that he had not won the award. And if you remember, that became such a moment of mockery that at the following year's ceremony, Jack Black came out in a replica of Michael's outfit from the year before and received the Super Genius of the Universe Award or something. So it it would really did make him a figure of complete mockery and um and according to this website which is you can't find it now which is the problem with digital journalism it's not sitting in a newspaper archive anywhere it's just gone but according to the industry insiders that spoke to this outlet it was a deliberate thing and anyone that was around in the fan community at the time as i was i remember we all knew a week before that ceremony happened. It was all over the forums. Next week, Michael's going to the, the VMAs and he's going to get the Artist of the Millennium Award. We were all tuning in because we knew in advance that he was mm. getting the Artist of the Millennium Award because Michael had people in his team who used to leak stuff out on the forums. In fact, it was strongly rumored at one time that one of them was uh, Frank Cassio. 
we all knew and fans were traveling to the ceremony because they knew in advance that he was getting the artist of the millennium award and fans were tuning in to watch it because they knew he was getting the artist of the millennium award so when they then tried to rescind it the fans knew what had happened because it, that doesn't happen by accident they clearly had told michael that he was getting that award because if he wasn't then how the fuck did we all know about it weeks before you know, or, or at least a week before it happened. It, it, and honestly, it, yeah. And, and for me, it's, uh, and it's because I'm just a fan of the brothers anyway, but I feel like this is just that moment where he needed his brothers in his life. He needed his brothers to bring that sanity back to his life and to his performances. He just seemed lost during this time. And, he probably needed to, if not just step away, but he probably needed to have, he needed to get back to performing with his family. Yeah, I agree. And it's, you know, and I come back to that, that rock and roll hall of fame moment where he's on stage. Absolutely. Getting that, getting that in, induction from these young contemporary white pop singers and it's like, where were his brothers in that moment? They were already in the Hall of Fame together. Why were his brothers not on stage welcoming him as, in as a solo artist? And, and he looked so comfortable with his brothers. You know, despite what we've what we have heard about their relationship, when they were inducted to as the Jackson Five, he looked comfortable with them. For me, he did. Uh, and so it's just, you know, he needed. I felt like he needed that. I know the fans wanted it as well. So um, I just wish in that moment after Invincible, uh, he would have reunited. Uh, I think that would have really helped him quite a bit. I think the part of what was going on was that he was deliberately staying away from them, not because of any of the reasons that we were sold mm -hmm. for years about, you know, greed and, and all that kind of stuff, but because of addiction we know that around this time, his family were trying to stage interventions. They were trying to get into Neverland. They were trying to reach him and to get him help for what was becoming a very apparent issue with uh, prescription pain medication, as he had unfortunately had previously. And this is a cloud that hangs over so much of what happened in that Invincible era from the recording of the music to the way that he was presenting when he was going out to promote the music to his decision-making and particularly the kind of cack handed way in which he handled the fallout with Sony. This is an elephant in the room is the addiction problem. And, and that is also, I think what was distancing him from his family at that time was because he knew that whenever the family got close, they were trying to stage interventions. And I think that's why they weren't there. And you're right. He does look lost. He comes across as lost during this period. And also, I would say, I've long thought that around that era, he was exhibiting what I would perceive as signs of depression. So, for example, if you take the Michael Jackson of the 1980s, who would never, ever allow himself to be seen in public, not looking fantastic, not dressed up to the nines with his hair 
done perfectly and his makeup done perfectly. When you compare that to some of the sightings of Michael around the Invincible era, sort of shuffling around in public in pajamas with his hair not done, with often tape on his face, things like that. This was this was a kind of a sign of somebody who has sort of given up. That is a classic sign of depression, is not taking pride in one's appearance, you know, and, and kind of being a bit shambolic. And that was the vibe that Michael was giving off around that time. I mean, for Michael Jackson, you know, in the 1980s, even the early 1990s, it would be absolutely beyond the pale to imagine Michael Jackson shuffling around in public in slippers and pajamas with stuff wrong with his face and with his hair not done. I mean, it was it would be inconceivable that he would allow himself to be seen in that way. And I do think that Michael had some issues going on at that time. And that's why I say, you know, it's this is although it can sound very critical when we discuss this era and the many problems with it, it's not really a criticism. It's just a, an objective discussion of what was going on. And what was going on was very sad. He just didn't look well in a number of ways during this whole period. And so it just gives a new meaning. And we've talked about this <laughs> to songs like Don't Walk Away. Charles, you just hit it on the head as to why, you know, that song resonates with me because, you know, he showed those signs of depression. He showed that he was lost. So when I hear a song like that, to me, he didn't plan it that way, but the lyrics and how he sings it and how, you know, you described it as a dirge, it, it, it was in many, in many respects. So that's why that song really stands out because that to me is symbolic of his life at well, the time. Well, you know, another, another sign of depression is not taking pride in one's work as well as one's appearance. And, and also, <laughs> I don't know if yeah. you remember this, but around... Well, when the album came out, Michael did what was a relatively rare radio interview. I have a feeling it was with Rolling Stones radio station or something like that. They were talking to him about some of the songs on the album. And he used a phrase which you would not expect to hear from uh, Michael Jackson, the famed perfectionist. He said something about the songs i thought it was acceptable i thought that that song was acceptable and it was like that is not michael jackson you know michael no. jack this is a guy who in old interviews no. used to say i work and work and work and work on these songs and i don't let it out until i think it's perfect or as close to perfect as it can be and to hear michael jackson on the radio saying well i thought that one could go on the album because it was acceptable it was like wow that's that's a real difference, you know. Yeah, it was almost it was you know it was resignation. That's what it was. It's, it sounds like you know he just resigned himself to where he was in his life yeah. at that time. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much for your time, guys. I know that there's been some complicated uh, topics to get through on this episode, and listeners, please understand that we really still believe Michael Jackson is, you know, one of the greatest entertainers of all time, if not the greatest of all time, and had so, so many amazing peaks in his career right from the early 70s all the way through. Uh, and 
hey, if you've got one average album and a whole stack of world-changing, incredible, best-selling albums of all time, it's it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> so, um, again, thank you so much for joining me, guys. Let's go around the table and just let people know where we can um, be found online. So, John, I know you've got an amazing set of podcast episodes that you put out as, as a part of JC's Musicology. I love it. Every time you drop an episode, I'm always waiting for the next one to come out. I see that you've teased some great upcoming episodes as well. Uh, where can people find you online? Thank you very much. Best place would probably be Twitter. My username is Cameron underscore John. The podcast, JC's Musicology, is available on all good podcasting platforms and a few dodgy ones. The next episode, which should come in January, will be on the bad era, and it's going to be a long one. Nice. Very good. Charlie, where can people find you? No, don't contact me. But um, by the way, <laughs> Fall Again is built on a sample of the guitar riff from the Sting song, Shape of My Heart. I got there in the end. And and Charlie, if I can interrupt that and say it was Glenn Lewis who recorded in 2002 for the May in Manhattan soundtrack. Good job, guys. Very good. Good researchers. All right. So Charlie can be founded at C.E. Thompson without the P. That's C-E-T-H-O-M-S-O-N on Twitter. And he would love to hear from you about his <laughs> thoughts on Invincible, uh, what songs he thought were not very good. He would love it if you could just tweet him big sort of chain messages, threads, just thread after thread, please, to Charlie of, of what, what yeah, your feedback particularly is. Particularly about how amazingly sexy Michael looked at the Oxford speech in 2001. <laughs> that would be great. And um, how Madison Square Garden 2001 was the greatest concert of Michael's career. Look forward to that yeah. as well. Great. Thank you. All right. So, Sean, where can people find you? I am on Facebook. Um, Sean Shackelford, S-H-A-W-N-S-H-A-C-K-E-L-F-O-R-D. And I'm on Twitter at S-A-S-H-A-C-K-E-L-F-O-R-D. And I am on Instagram at Sean.Shackelford. Also on Facebook, I am one of the administrators for the Jackson Music Club. And thank God for the Jacksons. Beautiful. James, where can people find you online, buddy? The best way would probably be Twitter, Mr. James 64. Don't laugh. I made that when I was 13. I think um, <laughs> Mr. James 64. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, that is a wrap. We've done our Invincible Roundtable. It is shaped up to be quite a long one, and I'm hoping listeners enjoy this. It is our last episode of the year before we get to our Christmas special, which Charlie Carter is hard at work planning. We're going to be recording that over the next week. But until we get that one out, thank you so much to everybody that's tuned in. Of course, if you want to find the MJ cast, you can find us on a whole bunch of social media platforms. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram as the MJ cast. You can find us on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Google Podcasts, all over the place. Just search for the MJ cast. If you want news and discussion episodes on the King of Pop, if you want special interviews with people that have worked with a new Michael Jackson, and if you want roundtables just like these, we've got heaps of episodes for you to enjoy. Thank you so much to everybody tuning in and can't wait to catch you for Christmas special. Keep Michaeling. <laughs>